Yeah, the, the Rona. You've got the Rona. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to start there. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, let's not. I'll, I'll, so I go back to my freestyle motocross story. Yep. Um, yeah, so I used to ride freestyle motocross and um, I wasn't that good at it. I was okay, but um, there was always lots of people that were way better than me. Um, <clears throat> but one of the big things that I worked on for ages was backflips. Like there was heaps of yep. pretty standard upright tricks that you should arguably be able to do before you start flipping, but I just got into flipping. And um, practice heaps in foam pits and stuff and then was doing them to dirt and I was doing short ones just off a super kicker, like 30 foot backflips. Oh, yeah. That was all good. And then um, I got into doing 75 foot backflips, which 75 foot sort of the standard gap um, in freestyle. It's 23 metres. Started yeah. flipping that. And I was like, you know, this is getting pretty legit. And um, rode at the AMP show in Tiaraha and... Uh, I was going to flip, and I don't think, I don't think the promoter who was running the show, who I was riding for, I don't think they'd said, "Oh, this guy's going to flip." They had it. She was like saving it as a surprise. Oh, it yeah. was Mary Perkins. I don't know if you remember Scary Mary. She rode in Krusty Demons and stuff. Oh yeah, I think I did. Yeah, used to watch that stuff when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, and she said, um, "Don't just flip randomly during the show. I'll tell you when to flip." Yep. And she was standing on the side and we're riding, you know, and you meant to do a couple of straight jumps and then do some, you know, some low-key tricks and, and then do some bigger tricks and then the flip was supposed to be, like, the big thing. Yeah. And um, these these two young kids, these two boys, were on the side, like, leaning over the rail and as I was riding back, they were, like, yelling, like, do a Superman, do a, do a this, do a that. And... Um, I think they said do a heel clicker first or something. And I did a heel clicker, super easy standard trick. And then um, they were like, do a Superman. And I did a Superman. It was like they were cracking up. It was like, yeah. oh, this dude can actually do it. <laughs> and I come back past and one of them yelled, do a backflip. And the other one laughed like, I don't think they were really thinking that I was actually going to do a backflip. Yeah. This is back, like backflips are super standard now, 75 foot backflip in freestyle. Like I think if you did a, if you do a straight backflip on a 75 foot gap these days without a big trick in it it's like oh you're screwed up oh, like yeah. it's almost like a plain sailor you know you've yeah. got to do like a big superman backflip or a double backflip or something yeah um but yeah i rode back past this kid goes do a backflip and i thought sweet i actually know how to do a backflip and then mary gave me the as i rode back past she went like that which is my signal to do one yeah. And I did one, and I went to ride back past. I thought they'd be like, yeah, good on you. And um, the other kid just yells out, do a double backflip. <laughs> and if you had been able to do a double, it would have been like, do a triple. Like yeah. it's never ends. Nah, it never ends, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The audience is just insatiable, eh? And it's the same, like what we were talking about, making videos and podcasts and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I guess we live in the world of like free entertainment now too, like free content, and that's a something as well. Like everyone expects everything to be there and be free, and 
easy to watch sort of thing. Like there's not much um, patience for um, watching things. Like even if you look at like your analytics, say, on YouTube and your watch time, it's like in that first 30 seconds you lose like half of your viewers and it's like, it's crazy. Like people just click off a video that quick. It's like, yeah, why would you even click on it if you're going to click off and within 30 seconds sort of thing? But I guess that's just because there's so many, so many options. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it is, it's a crazy thing. It's a crazy thing, like the how much content's being posted constantly. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> Can't remember what the stat is. It's something crazy like... Um, f- four thousand hours a minute, or something's been posted to YouTube, or something like that. Yeah, I'll bring it up. Um, how much video is posted to YouTube a minute? Yeah, five hundred hours every minute is posted to YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> that's like pretty nut. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right. It is like, and and um, it's funny. I was actually uh, I've got because everyone pretty much now has YouTube on their big smart TV, right? And they're just sitting there mm. watching yeah. YouTube on that. And I was watch. I was doing that the other night, and you know the whole algorithm, and it just suggests different things. Yeah. And um, it come up, like, there's a lot of content on YouTube now about how to do good at YouTube, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I was watching some of that stuff. Um, I've watched quite a bit of it, and there's that guy, have you heard of Mr. Beast? Yeah. Yeah, I I watched a podcast with him. I've watched a couple, actually. And, yeah, they were talking about how they hit that first 10 seconds so hard. Yeah. And they're actually re-watching a video of his and breaking it down. I think it might have been on the Logan Paul podcast. And because Logan Paul's another big YouTuber. Yeah. And um, they were just cracking up about how nuts Mr. Beast's video was. Yeah. And like in the first seven seven seconds or something, he was explaining what you're going to see in this video. And he like talks real. In this video, you're going to see him. We're going to go do this. And it's just... (laughs) And it's yeah. like the most crazy, I can't even remember, it was some crazy challenge thing and they were like running out of the house and they had to, it was like some video game in real life and they had to like get in a truck, drive up the road, but this log thing fell across the road and like all this crazy shit was going to happen. Yeah. And in the first seven seconds he explains what's going to happen in the whole video and they show you all these different, and it's like from drone shot to this shot to like, it's yeah. just n- like all of that <laughs> just to try and avoid that instant click off. Yeah, yeah. No, he's mastered it, eh? Like the art of doing that in his videos because all of his videos go viral pretty much. Yeah, he's yeah he's boiled it down to a science, eh? Yeah, definitely. It, did you listen to when he was on um, the Joe Rogan podcast? Yep. Sort of talking about what he... He had, like, spent a couple of years, I think, with a few other people just spending all day talking about YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, looking at what's trending and, 
like definitely put in heaps of work to try and work it all out and obviously he has worked it out. A hundred percent, yeah, like a, a real crazy, obsessive, driven, just yeah. like this is everything I'm doing and yeah, yeah it's crazy, eh? He's obviously really intelligent too. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's a crazy thing. And, and um, there's no like lulls in his videos, eh? They're just... There's no point where you could like think, ah, it's a bit boring. <laughs> it's just like one thing after the other sort of thing. Yeah, and uh, he was talking about, like he was talking about retention, like retaining the audience, you know, so the audience doesn't click out. Mm. And um, I actually, I've actually got a note on my phone, man, Mr. Beast Notes, and as I was watching a couple of pod, I think it might have been that podcast and another video, and then I think after that podcast, YouTube suggested something else that was him talking about YouTube, and then it suggests yeah. someone else, to, and then you like go down this rabbit hole, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, Mr. Beast notes. Um, yeah, so he looks at it the first ten seconds, and then the then the first forty seconds is another big bracket. Yeah. Um, side stories and other narratives so like he's like we're going to go do this but at the same time Mike's over here doing that and we don't know if he's going to actually make it and, and is he going to get you know so he's yeah. setting up all of these side stories and he was talking about tension so creating it this is what we're trying to do we don't know if we can do it yeah. and there's also this might happen along the way like setting up all these layers of tension and yeah, yeah it's <laughs> That's crazy, man. Yeah. The money that he spends too to like, and just the time, eh, just put into, I watched one of his videos the other day where they, it was like surviving a plane crash or whatever, and they bought this plane and just dropped it out of the sky. It was like a five (laughs) second clip of the plane just falling and crashing, and that was like, probably cost him like (laughs) so much money to do that. He he, like he makes makes millions. Mm. I saw there was another guy that was one of the highest, most the highest paid YouTubers. I think he was on Lo- on Logan Paul's podcast as well, and I think he was making about ten mil a month. Yeah, I think no, it might even be more than that. It was nuts. Yeah, it would be nuts. Yeah, um, and Mr. Beast is well, no, because this guy was the highest paid. But I think he was doing real long-form content, like gaming and stuff. Oh, so he's yeah. doing a lot of watch minutes. So even if he's getting 10 million views, but he's getting it on real long videos, and he makes massive long videos every single day. So he yeah. does it through um, qu- quantity. Yeah. And he also gets like 10 million views of these yeah. big long videos every single day. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like Mr. Beast would be making millions a month and he just spends everything back in eh? yeah yeah reinvest it everything yeah yeah <laughs> he, he's like um and uh, he's got his uh what do you call it his charity sort of channel as well which is pretty cool gives away heaps eh? Mm. yeah he um lives in a modest house doesn't you know and just puts it all in and like he's got a team that and looks after them really well and all of that yeah, um, it's all. It's not. It's def- It's not about the money. Eh? He's doing it like a. It's just some weird game 
yeah. obsession thing, eh? Yeah, pretty much. A real, to be. real passion. Mm. Um, man, you're doing well on YouTube for the type of content that you make and like hunting and yeah, you're out there. Yeah, getting there. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had a few videos, I think over COVID actually, that went really well, and we went from like six thousand subs to thirty thousand within a few months, sort of thing. Yep. Um, and that might have been actually partly because of the COVID stuff happening, and I think they were on um, like filling our freezer with meat and stuff, and that was sort of probably what a lot of people were thinking about when there was food shortages and all that sort of thing going on and everyone's stuck at home watching YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this uh, this one right here, I've got it up, eh? Yeah, filling yeah. our freezer with only wild meat. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think that, for whatever reason, that whole genre on YouTube has been quite big for a long time, eh? Like, Sort of the why you know Brody YBS, no. Young Blood Spearfishing. Oh yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, his content, I think a lot of that content is that, and you're sort of like, man, this is a little bit hard work. He's like, hey guys, and he's like, hey. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of it is um, one interesting thing I noticed on his channel was um, he went to a boat show thing. Um, to do like a meet and greet at some big boat show, I think with, with Genesis Craft, who sponsors him. Oh. And he was like, right, we're going to do a meet and greet. And he must have put it out there, going to be at this boat show. And it was all, it was just a sea of kids, man. They were like 10. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that's a huge part of the audience. Yeah. Um, but he does that whole like, right, we're going to go out and like 24-hour survival on the beat, you know? Yeah, 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 that's a popular genre too. I've done a few of those sort sorts of things, um, mainly just because that's sort of what I've become interested in lately, <laughs> but mm. last few years. Um, yeah, they haven't got as big as that guy though. No, that's, that's um, that filling our freezer with only wild meat, 660,000 views it's quite a it's quite a whack eh? and then your mm. next possible po most popular one is refilling our freezer <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with only wild meat but that's cool man and it's obviously you know you're not doing you, that's you've, what you've always done anyway you know yeah you just filmed it's just it. filmed at that time those couple of times yeah 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 and yeah and you probably did right over COVID people were like people were legit Starting to look around, and go. What's gonna happen here? How's this yeah. gonna? Yeah. Well, it? it's pretty crazy when, like, I, I mean, it wasn't that bad here, but the supermarkets were a little bit short, eh? Yeah. And then you look at stuff happening overseas. I think they were quite a bit shorter than some of our supermarkets. So mm. it's got to be a concern if you live in town and it's like the only place you can get food. Dude, it was a, it was a. Yeah, it was a fucking weird feeling there for a while, eh? Like, when it was like, which, which way is this going to go? Like, real early on, you know, mm. in that first lockdown, everyone's talking about food shortages, toilet paper's all selling out, like... <laughs> toilet paper and hand sanitizer. <laughs> it's like, yeah. shows how, like, out of touch people are with what you need. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fuck, it was weird, eh? Mm. Um... Mm. It's like 
if you went in the bush for a month, what would you take? If you had like 10 items from the supermarket, you wouldn't pick hand sanitizer or toilet paper. No, I, I literally wouldn't take any of either. Like no. if, if you could only take, if I had to go in the bush for a month, and I could own yeah ten items, or you could only yeah. carry it on the back. I'd be straight away. Well, I'm not taking yeah, I'm not taking <laughs> toilet paper. I'm not taking any. I'm going to use leaves, you yeah. know. Yeah. Like, um, it's and it's amazing. It's probably a pretty strange subject, but um, it's amazing how you can get the whole like leaf white. Josh James uses um, moss. Oh, that's and, what I use. Too. Oh, do you? If it's yeah. around, yeah. yeah. Wet oh. moss and then dry moss after that if you can. Yeah. <laughs> I always felt like getting a big handful of moss, like you'd, it'd be, you know, you'd have like bits of shit, fly, like you'd have like <laughs> bits of moss left behind, you know, like. Oh, um, yeah. You, I like get a big handful and then like squeeze it together so it's tight. Mm. And then it seems to stay in one bunch. Yeah, and I tried it one time, and then I realized, like, yeah, if there's that perfect moss, and it's like the, you've got to like pull it off, so it's just the top, like fluffy layer, eh? And, and yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. I did it, and it <laughs> sort of worked. I was like, okay, yeah, but I'd rather do the leaf white, like the right leaf. Yeah, and there's a, quite a bit of technique involved, but um, <laughs> but yeah. you can get some great results. Like, <laughs> yeah, but it's you're right. It's so funny how. That was everyone's first instinct. Was just like I can't run out of toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck! Mind you, you, might, you, you most people in town you don't have like a tree with all these. Like, what nah. are you actually? Yeah. What are you going to use? Yeah, you're going to have to jump in the shower or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. Some cultures don't even use any toilet paper at all. Mm. They, like, use their hand. Oh, do they? Yeah, just, like, <laughs> use their hand and then, like, wash their hand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I feel there's a few different... Yeah. I think India, I'm pretty sure, you no toilet paper, you just... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty weird that we do, like, wipe, and then we're just like, oh, sweet, that'll do. <laughs> You know, like if you got shit on your hands, you don't just go wipe a bit of paper on them and be like, sweet, that's clean. It's true. <laughs> that's true. It is very true. Yeah. Um, this one where you built the hut's pretty cool, man. Yeah. The primitive hut. Trying something different. I've seen a few of those videos and just thought it'd be kind of fun to try it out. Yeah. How long yeah. did it take you to build that hut? Um, was that I'd, a multi-day? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. I sort of did it, I didn't do like, do it non-stop. I was sort of pre-feeding in that area and I just sort of did it every now and then. But it was probably about four days of work sort of thing, like maybe 30-odd hours or something of, of actually working on it. Yep. Um, and is it is it all properly waterproof? Like if it was pissing down? Oh, I wouldn't say that. No, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's close to it. If I spent more time, I, you could make it fully waterproof. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I had sort of just enough bark that I could easily get to cover the roof, but there were definitely a few spots that were a bit iffy. 
I took, I've taken the bark off it now to let it dry out in the sun sort of thing. And then I could just like put the bark back on when I want to sleep in it. Yeah. I was going to say, you could easily put a tarp over it and it'd be thin. But, yeah. that, but it's like almost too cool to do that with, eh? That's what I was thinking. Like, I, yeah, when I was going to make the roof, I was like, oh, I could just use um, panga frongs. And just do them thick, but then it's not quite as cool. And then I've used live plants. I really wanted to make the whole thing without sort of using much live material. So yeah, the harakiki was the only live thing I used, but I didn't have to kill the plant to use it. So yeah, yeah that was kind of the part of the challenge I'd set myself. <laughs> Bit of a random one. <laughs> That's cool, man. That's cool. It's yeah. it like just it would have been a cool mission, and it like to stand back and at the end of it. Yeah, super rewarding that sort of thing. Like I can see why those guys that do that do it. You know, like, yeah, be quite satisfying. Yeah, that's um, Doing it all the time. That's quite a big genre too. Eh? That seems to go hard on YouTubers. Yeah, people building huts and that. Yeah. Have you seen the ones where? And you sort of you're, this one had a vibe of it at the start when you were digging out the foundations. Have you seen the ones of those guys like overseas and they're digging them like right into the ground and all the steps and little water holes and yeah, some of them are. I'm sure some of them are bullshit. Eh? <laughs> you reckon they just like get some shots of them chipping. A bit out the start yeah. and then like the digger comes in. Some of them are um have been like sort of debunked, I guess. Oh yeah. Yeah, like they've sort of seen and some of the shots they've messed up and there's like digger tracks and oh, okay. <laughs> in the foreground or whatever. Doesn't surprise me. Um because I guess they're making so much money if they're getting millions of views on some of those channels. Yeah. I mean, they just be like pump them out and mm. doesn't even matter, just but yeah, I have seen them. They're pretty elaborate, eh? Some of them, it's like swimming pools and mm. all sorts. It's crazy, yeah. And it, and it starts off like they walk up and like I saw one when I think they had a like a machete and they were like cutting the dirt with them, like cutting out all these marks. And then yeah, yeah, it was de- like yeah, they were def- even if they did pull a digger in in between, they were still pretty freaking good at it. It was pretty cool. Yeah, pretty yeah sort of shows what you can actually do if you just put time and labour into something. Mm. That's probably how a lot of shelters were, were used to be built mm. a few thousand years ago. I made that one, um, in the, remember when, that hut that I made? I think you went there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yep. you went past it one time. Um, yeah, I stayed in it once, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, it was a bit of a shambles by the end, but it was cool yeah. when, yeah, that was a whole cool thing, like going and making my own hut. Yeah. It was my own hut, and it wasn't staying in a public hut. Um, yeah, yeah it, was, it was cool. It's nice having that, your own space, eh, if you're living in there, having yeah. your own little camp, you're not having to worry about someone turning up and... Sort of, if you're living in a hut in there, you got to make sure it's all tidy every morning before you leave, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's yeah. It is a. It is more work living in a public hut. Yeah, exactly. Like you say, you've got to make sure. Yeah, everything's all tidy and put away. Security's a bit of a thing too. You're always mm. thinking like what is like what you're leaving lying around and. Someone might take off or something or, yeah, and, like, getting, like, just the mega Karen turning up. 
you know, so everything you know, everything has to be squared away, perfect every day. Yeah, yeah. If you slip up, like, yeah, someone could hook in. Mm. Um, you move back up north, up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been up here for oh a year and a half or something. Yeah, yeah. A yeah, bit over. Yeah. Are you still trapping full time? Um, not the last 12 months I've done, I've been doing like, uh, meat, pet food stuff. I did a lot of that when we first moved up. I was trapping pretty much full time and just doing all the bodies and then spotlighting at night and shooting wallabies and stuff like that and selling them. Um, and then, yeah, I've done a bit of seasonal work, um, for a guy on cows, just a random sort of couple of months job. And then, yeah, making videos as well and all sorts. But all sorts. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, making Patreon videos. So that's mm. been keeping me busy too. Yeah. Like um, sort of e- educational stuff and plant videos and how to get started in the bush sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. How's that going for you? Enjoying that? Like, yeah, it's cool. Like, um, yeah, we've had a few people um, message us and sort of say, oh, I went for my first walk in the bush the other day or, you know, first walk off track kind of thing after watching those videos. And that's pretty cool to hear people are sort of getting out there. Yeah. Um, it's sort of ha- good to be able to help some people. Yeah, it's re- that's rewarding, eh? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, how come you like left down south? It was just like time for a change, or was was it getting was, were possums getting scarce, or what was going on? Oh, just um, just having kids now, so that was the reason. Basically, yeah. yeah, all the families up here on both sides, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I wondered if that might have been it too. Yeah, yeah. If we had well, if, if we had family down there, I think we'd still be there. Yeah. Um, it's bloody nice down there, it but is. it's nice up here too. Like, pretty lucky, eh? It's nice everywhere <laughs> in New Zealand. Pretty much, it mm. is. And um, like me and Josh were talking about the other day, this this area right here, like, and especially as you get that way a little bit more, like where you are, yeah, yeah the hunting and fishing and access and the sea and the bush and it's it's pretty and the climate and everything, it's pretty freaking good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I see you've been getting into a little bit of fishing. Oh, a little, <laughs> a little I, saw, bit. I, I wouldn't, s- wouldn't talk to you about that too much. Yeah. Um, bit I'm of guessing casting and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I'm guessing growing up ar- around this area, you would have fished off and on bits and pieces forever, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to go down like surf casting off Matatar quite often. Used to always catch quite big kawai when I remember when I was real young, like pretty easily, and then it sort of got harder for a while there. I think there's probably more, almost better now than it was 10 years ago off the beach, from what I remember. Yep. Like we've caught it quite a, every time we went out last summer, we caught snapper and stuff, so. Mm. Um, I wonder. If there's any reason for that, or it's just coincidence, or yeah, I don't know. I've got no idea. Eh? Mm. There's heaps of carway around here. 
heaps yeah. of them. Like you can always get them in the harbour. Um, and usually if you get out the front here in the boat and get out, um, out a certain distance, there's usually big workups and all of that, you know, car wire just yeah, always always there, always. And I don't mind eating them. Some people are like, oh, I'm not that fast on car wire, but... Um, yeah, they were right, eh? They were right, eh? Yeah. yeah should you? Quite like them, like sashimi, smoked. Yeah. Just everything, really. Yeah. Even just fried, like fillet them and fry them when they're fresh mm. and you handle it right, it can be good as gold, eh? Yeah. Mm. I saw you, um, you were trying to kayak out a long line, was it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and did you get it out? I think you did in the end, eh? Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, we've taken that out a few times. It's a labour-intensive way of catching fish. <laughs> but yeah. It's quite good fun. Mm. But, yeah, definitely falling out quite a few times trying to get past the breakers. Yeah, as soon as I pressed play on that clip and I saw the waves and you dragging that, I was like, yeah, this is going to be... I was sort of like leant forward, like, this will be interesting. <laughs> um a mate of mine used to do a fair bit of that. Had would take the kayak down and just yeah, because you you don't need like a two thousand dollar contiki and mm. um, bit of a pain in the ass, but also quite a straightforward way of doing it in a lot of ways too. Eh? You don't mm. have to worry about losing a contiki or nah nah mm, or like getting put like blowing offline or what it you know current pulling it and all the different things that can go wrong and battery and all of that. You just get in and paddle out and drop it. Yeah. And it's there, you know? Yeah. And if the current's real bad, you can probably just sort of sit out there and keep it online for a while. Yeah. Before you drop it anyway. Yeah. But yeah, the, like you say, there's a bit of a pain. It's mostly just the actual transporting of the kayak that's a pain, like dragging it down to the beach and loading it on the truck and all that. Yeah, 100%. I, I, Fucking hate kayaks, man. man. Come here, kayaks don't mix. Got a bad, bad um, record with kayaks. Yeah, and I'm pretty, pretty scared of the sea. I'm pretty scared of being in the water. Oh yeah, yeah, like sharks and that, and yeah. and being in small craft on the water. I'm not relaxed. Oh, neither am I. I can't. <laughs> I can't swim properly. Eh? True. <laughs> no, nah. no. Nah, I have to wear a life jacket when I do that job. Yeah. And then just, yeah, there's a couple of times I've fallen out past the breakers and couldn't get back in. I was just like slowly paddled back to shore. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I don't like to see either, eh? That's, dude, it's so gnarly, man. Mm, it is. So gnarly. Definitely not our element. Nah, in the bush, um, like, yeah, if, if, what do you, if something good, you, you're walking, you can always just walk, you know, you're on yeah. land, like in, yeah. in the sea, you can't get out and walk. No. Yeah. Um, Barry Crump had a quote about helicopters and why he hated helicopters. And he said, I don't really like anything that you can't just get out and walk. Yeah. And in a helicopter, you can't, and in a boat, you can't. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the sea's gnarly, man, how it can just cut up. You be out there in a boat, like get that forecast wrong, and like, yeah. sorry, yeah. <laughs> and then sharks, and then sharks. You know, there's all this shit in there that can kill you. Not that it happens like 
you know, like statistically, yeah, it's extremely safe. You know, provided you can swim and you're not, you know, you're not. Mm. Ca- if you're talking just swimming in the sea safely, like the risk of sharks is extremely low. But I don't, yeah, it's. And in that respect, my thing with it is like an actual phobia. It doesn't, yeah, you know, like because statistically, driving these more yeah. unsafe. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not all tense and freaking out in the car. Yeah. But as soon as I'm in the like my heart rate goes up. I'm, it's yeah, yeah, it's not good. Um, in a bigger boat, I'm alright. Yeah, yeah, but I'm probably more careful than some people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, it's pretty crazy. Mm. I want to be in a good size boat. I want it to be really flat. I want it to be a good forecast. I want, you know what I mean. I want everything to yeah. be to be teed right up. Um, are you really into eating all that weird shit, or do you do it for the content? <laughs> <laughs> nah, I have got into it. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, oh, a few reasons why I've got into it in the last few years. Um, one, just probably for health reasons and sort of getting back to basics and the more I've read, the more I think we should be eating, you know, nose to tail, everything, every sort of part of the animal has a different um, amount of vitamins and and minerals and cartilage and all that sort of stuff that's probably pretty good for our bodies to regenerate with. Um, and I watched, have you seen Alone? It's a show on History Channel. There's a few episodes on YouTube and stuff. It's a it's a thing in the States. It's a show and it's like a competition where they have like 10 people and they drop them out in the bush for... Um, well, f- for as long as they'll last, basically, they give them 10 items, like basic items. And that's why I got into bow hunting too, because that, that's sort of the best hunting item you can get as, a, as a, like a basic traditional recurve. Um, yeah, that's it there. And yeah, they sort of have to make the most of it, every animal they get. And I, I, as soon as I sort of watched one season, I was like, Fuck, that's me. And the prize for being the, being there the longest, lasting the longest, is like half a mil. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to enter that. <laughs> so I entered it and then I just, yeah, started sort of practising that sort of thing. When you say you entered it, like you entered to like... Applied Apply for the show. To yeah. go on the show. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to get on. <laughs> but um, mainly I think, well, I don't know, they probably, they might not want to put me on anyway, but um, I think legally, because it's mostly filmed in like Alaska and that, and I don't think legally like a, a non-resident could go in there and just like shoot a moose sort of thing without anyone around I think you need like a guide there's sort of legal stuff over there and all the contestants are usually citizens so I think I don't think I'll be out of into that unfortunately that makes sense mm. um, but it's a wicked show if you haven't watched it yeah no it does sound good 
Yeah, what's it on? Like we can. Oh, you say some of it's on YouTube. Yeah, the shorts and stuff. Um, I think I have seen bits and pieces of it, man. I think yeah. I have seen. But was was one of the contestants on Joe Ro- on the Joe Rogan podcast, like the guy that won it or something? Yeah, I think one of them was yeah. a good year or two ago. Yeah, yeah. And I remember he had a bunch of Kuyu gear. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was interesting hearing him talk about it. Yeah. Mm. He's probably the best um, contestant they've had. Like, he sort of cruised through it pretty easy. Like, he wasn't that skinny at the end. Whereas, yeah, a lot of them, well, most, some of them sort of can't hack the isolation and they just give up. And then some just get super skinny, because eh, they can't get an animal and they're living on, like, just wild plants and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then they just pull them out, because they're like, no, nah, you're just... You're like, going to die. Yeah, you're just <laughs> emaciated. Oh, <laughs> um, I, I 100% think there's something to what you're saying about eating nose to tail, um, eating all parts of the animal. Mm. Um. I remember towards the end of my run of doing a lot of trapping, I was getting pretty underweight and pretty unhealthy. And uh, Alan Foster, did you ever meet Alan Foster? No. He was in uh, in Hanamahihi for a season, and he's sort of a old school hunter, trapper, ex color, um, known Bruce for he knew Bruce forever and all of that. Yeah. And um, yeah, he. He was doing a season in Hanamahihi at the time. He was in his 60s, you know, really experienced old school Bushman. Yeah. And I'd been in there for, what was that? I think I think this was only my second season going full time in there. Yep. And um, yeah, second or third, somewhere around there. And I was working up in Wright Branch first. He must have hung around for quite a while. Yeah, because I was in Wright Branch and then I was in Kaitawa. But, um, and I was doing some pretty long runs and I remember, and I come down to Hanamahihi and I was meant to meet Bruce there and pick up some food. And uh, unfortunately, like usual, no one turned up. (laughs) And I think this, that was the first time meeting Alan. Oh, yeah. And I, I got on the mountain radio, I had a mountain radio, I think I was in Kaitawa at this point, and I had a mountain radio up in Kaitawa, and I got on the mountain radio, talked to, talk to Ted, yeah. and said, hey, I, and because I was at that point, I either needed to pack up all my shit and fly out and do a full resupply and fly back in, mm. or, um, but I had a line that was cranking and the forecast was good for like six days or something, oh, yeah. and I just wanted to get that last, Keep going, yeah. Yeah, get yeah. that last whack out of it. Yeah. And, um, but I was out of supplies. And uh, I got on the mountain radio, said to Ted, hey, check with Bruce and them. Um, if they can, if they're coming up, they could bring some stuff up. That'd be awesome and I'll finish this run. If they can't, say, tell me, and that's cool too because I'll pack up and leave. And I got the message back, you know, no, they're coming up Tuesday or whatever it is, Let give us the list. And so sweet. I gave the list and I went down to Hannah He got there and, like, Rick was supposed to be there with my stuff. And Alan was there. Yeah. I'm trying to think. 
fuck, it's a few years ago now. Nah, this wasn't the to- this was the second I'd met Alan beforehand. I remember meeting Alan when I got dropped off there at the hut. Rick or Bruce, I think Bruce took me up, met him, stayed the night, and then I walked up to Right Branch. And this was a few weeks later. I walked back down, so I already knew. I was like, "G'day, how's yeah. it going, man? Is Rick here or what?" He's like, "Nah." I'm fucking waiting for him too. He was, <laughs> he was pissed and spitting tacks. So we're both there sitting in this hut, both completely out of supplies. They were meant to be there like the night before and we ended up just sitting around this hut for like two days waiting for someone to turn up. Yeah. And no one did. And it was just, I'm sure you've had it before, waiting for a helicopter or something. And Yeah, it's the worst day. The worst, man. And we were worked out too and and freaking hungry. And we had bits and pieces. We had like a few potatoes and like, you know, a bit of coffee. And um, I think we had gear to make bread. And, yep. you know, there might have, there's like an onion and a half and salt. And you know what it's like. Like yeah. you just got your last bits and pieces and you're sizing it up. Like, okay, yep. what shall we do tonight and that? And, um, but yeah, that's when, in that two days, sitting around with Alan was mm. like, um, he just started telling me, we just talk about like bush stuff and he was like giving me all these tips, you know. Mm. And um, I remember saying, fuck, I've just been buggered, man. And he said, um, like, are you eating the livers? Yeah. From the deer? So like, nah. And yeah, he sort of did the, I just shook his head like, bloody young fellas, you got to eat the livers, like, don't you know? And gave me yeah. the big thing. Like, yeah. Um, and I think it was on about day two or three, no one had turned up. And I said, oh man, fuck off. Um, I've, I can't remember what it was. I had to go back up for something. I was like, I got to go. I got to go do something up on my block. And um, left about mid-morning, and I walked up around, you know when the foot track first hits right branch, like you yeah. go over from Hanamahihi over the little, you know, toe of the spur and into the creek. Yeah. Come around like the first or second corner, there's a little slip there, and then there was a yelling on it, and I just bowled that. Yeah. And um, I was supposed to be going back, and then I knew like Alan, and we had like a couple of potatoes and an onion and a bit of stuff, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm just going to go back to took the deer straight back to the hut and we just cooked like this massive ass feed. Yeah. Cut up the liver, ate that. Yeah. Um and eating that liver was literally like if you're I'm like a, a um caffeine fiend. Yeah. And if I haven't had caffeine to too late in the day, I'm feeling like shit. And if I have I have, have a coffee, it just zip. Yeah. Like keeps me straight straight up, feel totally different. Mm. Um in that state all like stuck, like hungry as and all run down. Yeah. Um, can't remember what we ate. I think we just did a big fry up with the heart and the liver. Um, yeah. And just slice the liver up into like nice little ten mil slices and just seared it on each side. You're like just like pink in the middle. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, fuck, this is good. We ate heaps <laughs> of it. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, fuck it, I'm gonna stay the night, man. Let's get a big stew on and stuff. And I remember just being pacing around the hut and just back. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot in it, eh? Mm. I, don't, I don't know exactly what, but 
lot of um, vitamins and minerals, I think. A lot of vitamins and minerals, yeah. yeah. A lot of B12. Yep. I bet you Google will tell us. Um, so what are, like, what are the um, things... I know liver's a biggie, right, and that's a pretty mm. well-known one. Yep. Um, yeah. Do you know, is there any other key things that you know is good to eat or you just reckon eat everything? <laughs> <laughs> like, what's the go? <laughs> eat just about everything, I reckon. Um, like, obviously, your bone broth, cartilage, like, all that... Um, Oh, collagen and stuff like that that's in the bones and the the nose and the tongue and the um yeah all that sort of thing I, I like the fat like the fat around the um kidneys and that that leaf fat I think they call it in pigs yeah um, yeah I know what you mean um do they call it suet oh, probably yeah. yeah the the real clean white fat the internal fat around the kidneys. Yeah. 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 That that's I think that does hold a lot of uh, minerals and stuff too. And if you eat like you wouldn't want to eat it off an animal that's been living in like a polluted area or eating like grass that's grown that's been like round up and stuff because that's where the a lot of the toxins are stored in that fat around the kidneys. Yeah. Like a deer in the bush or a pig in the bush that's fat like a velvety stag or something like that fat's like really good prime yeah that's a real interesting thing eh that I've heard about that before about how our bodies store toxins and fat mm. and if you've been eating heaps of real crappy food and toxic stuff whatever you've been doing um, and you get overweight and your body's like storing a lot of toxins in its fat and then when, if you're trying to work out and, like, cut down your diet and trying to force your body to burn fat, the body doesn't want to. It's like, nah, it's because it's got to metabolise the mm. fat, including the poison in it, to yeah. burn it. Yeah. And you get in a real sticky spot where, you're like, you're, you're storing all this fat full of gnarly shit and your body doesn't want to burn it. And that's so, like, your so your energy levels would go right down. You'd be super unmotivated, like, real difficult to... Um, you know, burn burn heaps that your body doesn't want to do it. It yeah. just shuts everything down like, nah, man. Yeah, that makes sense, eh? Yeah, and yeah. Um, I've actually experienced it myself and then um, I know if I want to, like, get into a health kick and lose some weight, if I've been eating crappy for quite a while, the best thing I can do for a good few weeks first is just clean my diet right up. Yeah. Just eat real clean and healthy for a while yeah. and, like, flush out the shit a little bit and then your body's way more happy to hook in and burn that burn your fat mm. um here liver is one of the most nutritionally dense foods on the planet it contains significant amounts of folate iron vitamin b vitamin a copper eating a single serve of liver can help you meet your daily recommended amount of these vitamins and minerals reducing the risk of a nutrient deficiency yeah just like a natural multivitamin, eh? Yeah. But probably way better. <laughs> probably way better, man. Mm, all this easy to absorb. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, Alan was just like, are you eating your livers? <laughs> nah. He just like did the old head shake, yeah. just like, fuck's sake. But what are you, young buggers? Yeah. 
But people don't do that these days, so you're not going to land like most people don't eat liver. It's no wonder. Like, I didn't used to eat it either. Did you eat it in the bush? When did you start getting into that stuff? Like, when did you start? Um, I remember doing a trip, and the first possum block I had in there, I was in casino, and then for a few different reasons I ended up, I was like, all my gear was there, but I had to trap in a different block and the heads of Carnahee, and then so I carried all my traps and gear over there, and, like, by the time I had, like, my sleeping bag and tent and, like, 120 traps, I was, like, not much room for food. (laughs) (laughs) You were so hardcore back then, man. Yeah. So so I had, like, (laughs) traps, like, 40 traps in my hand sort of thing, and then traps, like, tied to the pack. How many traps did you carry? I didn't have 120 all on, on, on at once. I might have had 80 or 90 and then I sort of went back or something. Dude, that's still crazy. Um, but, yeah, anyway, I went into that other block and it was, like, heaps of possums in there, so I was stoked. And I was working that and, like, catching, like, the ma- more possums than I'd ever caught and I was, like, real happy. But I had, like, no food. <laughs> and I didn't know, like, anything. Um like, I could have just cooked up possum, but I just didn't really, like, think about it because it wasn't, like, the mainstream thing to do. So I just got real hungry, eh? What were you eating? Oh, I had, like, a bit of porridge and stuff. And like, I think I had, like, a bag of porridge and a can of condensed milk, and that was pretty much it. And I was, like, sprinkle a bit of porridge in the pot, <laughs> like when I got back to camp and put a bit of water in, like a little bit of condensed milk and be like frothing over it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, dude. Eventually I got like real hungry. I was like, oh, bugger this. I just unset my line. I'm going back to the hut. I, I need food. And um, yeah, when I got back to the hut, I was like so hungry. I like made a loaf of bread in the camp oven and made like a big bowl of jelly with like twice the amount of jelly oh. sachets to make it set quick. And then I <laughs> ate heaps eh, and then spewed it all up. Oh, just a, a just a ton of gluten and sugar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, spewed it all over the helicopter pad. Oh. And then, uh, yeah, sort of after that, and I was real skinny when I came out that time. I was like 62 or 63 kilos. Um, and I'm like, 72 now people think I'm bloody skinny now so yeah after that I sort of started getting into it like I didn't get into it hard out but I sort of started thinking about that sort of thing because it's comforting to know you can be in there and just like get enough food always you know like that's the goal sort of thing you don't have to worry about it yeah and and how like Starting to eat possum. Yep. How did that start? Like, oh, right after that trip, <laughs> pretty much. Did you come up with the idea yourself, or did someone else say, "Hey, you know, you can eat possum"? Or oh, I'd heard, I'd heard people eat it. Mm. Yeah, like there's that guy, um, Filthy Phil, eh? Yep. That everyone knows about, and he used to live on it. And a lot, oh, most possum trappers like have eaten it. Um. So yeah, I was like, I'm going to start eating it now, and yeah. You made the leap. I got right into it. Yeah. 
And well, because and it does make sense because food is one of the biggest challenges in there. Mm. When you're flying, you can take heaps of flour for your trap line, and you can take you know this stuff that just lasts. But fresh food, yeah, consistently over and over, and and um, having a good supply of meat with a reasonable fat content. And I believe possum fat is actually quite good, like good high omegas and all of that. So it's mm. quite a solid, complete food. Yeah. So once, if you've got a good supply of fresh meat, um, I know if you don't, that's sort of what liver does is it can replace your greens a bit. Like if you don't yeah. eat, if you're not eating your greens yeah. and you're just eating rice, porridge and meat, like flesh mm. meat, yeah. that gets a bit hard on you. Gets, yeah. can get very hard on you actually especially yeah. when you're working hard in that yeah. um but yeah so aside from that greens thing uh as soon as you've got a good source of meat with a bit of fat in it you can go a long way eh? yeah the fat's the key like yeah like you say lean meat um isn't you can't really live on like lean meat alone but yeah if you got a bit of fat in there it's a big thing like looking into I did a few trips planning for a loan when I thought I was going to go on there and like shooting deer and living on them but yeah you soon eat the fat out of them like all that it's not a lot on most deer most times of the year in the bush but yeah possums are like one thing that are reliably fat most of the time, you do get, yeah, at times <laughs> in places where they haven't been worked for bloody 20, 30 years, they're, they're skinny as, but you can usually find a fat one. Mm. Yeah, some places in some years, like if you get no berries and there's heaps of possums, they, they can be yeah, yeah, really skinny. But like you say, even then you'd usually find the odd young one that's in reasonable condition. Yeah. Um. Did, did, like, food safety, did, you know, like, <laughs> did that ever bother you or how do you think about that? Oh, like, yeah. What do you mean? Like? Oh, just, like, the meat that you buy in the supermarket. I used mm. to work in the meatworks and there's MAF inspectors in there and uh, every animal, they do a whole process, you know, and they, like, cut glands they, they oh, um yeah. like around yeah. the head yeah and they hang it up and I, I worked on the head chain a lot on the slaughter floor mm. that's one of the first parts of the animal that gets inspected yeah and there's glands in the neck yeah and, the lymph nodes yeah, yeah there's a couple of different glands in there and they also put a couple of big slices in the cheek they've basically all the meat that's in the supermarket through math and food safety and that, there's all of these different protocols. It's all super hardcore. Mm. And um, so there's a math trained inspector there on the head chain and they inspect the animal. They pull the tongue out, look at that. Um, and they're all trained to spot, you know, like a certain lesion may m mean a certain thing. And, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and yeah, the lymph nodes, they'll, and they actually take the whole lymph node and go like, cross-section it all 10 slices like completely fillet the whole thing right open 
and you know if there's little different marks or discoloration or whatever they look cyst or whatever they're looking for and they can mean different things yeah then um so there's that there was one inspector on the head chain checking all those glands and a visual inspection on the head mm. then around uh, it was after the gutter, so after the animal, after the cow had been skinned, fully skinned. Yeah. Um, there was another guy on a um, on a big stand going up and down, so he could like put a pedal, psh, go right up to the top of the cow, check shit up there, and like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. and there, they'd actually take swabs off certain points, like where the the skinner had opened it up. Yeah. They'd take swabs and then like pass that down to someone in a little room and they'd go back and like dip it in some solution and they were making sure that that yeah. dude was like washing his hands properly. There was no... They do that on every animal. I don't think that little lab was running every single day. Oh, yeah. It was just like a spot test sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, it was running like at least a day a week. Yeah. So if anyone was mm. getting sloppy, like... Mm. It was all pretty hard. Of course, so every every cut you do, if you you this le- the skinner like first leg that's opening up the the first leg to start skinning it, and then that, and then the second leg he opens up the other leg, yeah, and then that goes around to the hide puller, and you know so you got this cow hanging up. That first leg guy when he's doing his first cut, he like. In between cows, washes all his hands, sterilizes his knife in like ninety degree hot water, yeah. and everything's clean. Turns around, um, leg between the cow leg between his knees, you know, and like reaches forward and grabs a bit of skin. Does his first opening cut, reaches around, and they've got like a sterilizer with a your wavy hand past a laser, which starts the sterilizer and like dips his knife in psh, full like ninety five degree sterilize. Yeah. Because he's cut through the skin. Yeah, oh, I see. Yeah. And then full sterilize, and yeah. now he's skinning the leg. Now yeah. he's touching the meat. Yeah. And then gets to a certain point, like sterilizes his knife again, cleans his hands. Like it's all crazy. Hardcore. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never worried about that. I. Eh? I don't know. Yeah. I mean. No one really gets sick, like, uh, you know, even the home-cooked guys, they're not doing that either, I'm sure. And then nah, all, not all that full-on. Yeah, all nah. the hunters in New Zealand that are eating their own meat, they're not, they're not mm. um, getting diseases and shit. You pretty much never hear of it, eh? No. No. No, a lot of that's, oh, I don't know, yeah. A lot of it's probably one thing happened and then it was just like this massive thing started and then they just ran with it. Mm. You gotta Yeah. Yeah, I think and, and I think that is why all of that stuff is why like, you know, back in the day you used to excuse me, you used to be able to go shoot a deer and just like cut the hindquarters off mm. and take them in and sell them and yeah. gone. And then and yeah. then you could, like, um, I think you could fully gut it, but they wanted the head, but you could cut the head off or something. And then yeah. eventually that head had to stay on and the heart, liver, 
lungs and all that stuff had to stay in. So it's yeah. basically a complete animal. And because, yeah. oh, that's the other thing they do is they inspect the liver. Mm. I don't think they cut. There, there's another meth inspector on a stand going up and down. He checks a couple of glands, does a visual check, does a swabbing, all of that shit. There's another guy on the gut table. Yeah. And he's checking the liver for visual stuff and rolling it around and he's got like you know some 12 point thing that he's doing yeah i've always checked i always check the liver mm. and um like yeah check the make sure the glands aren't swollen under the neck or the like that obvious stuff make sure there's no lesions on the rib cage and that um but on the yeah. inside of the rib cage yeah that's a um thing that's sort of they get with tb or so i've read about yeah yep um, so yeah, I always check that sort of, you know, obvious stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, way eh, like looking if you're looking at a healthy animal or not, like it's generally pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have had it a couple of times. I remember one stag that a mate shot, and it looked mint. I was like, man, he's in good nick. And we gutted it, and he had all these white spots on his liver. They were pretty. The liver looked super healthy. It just had yeah. these white spots. I didn't even notice it, to be honest. And my mate was like, what are those spots on its liver? Mm. I was like, I don't think it was anything. Yeah. But, um, yeah, we were like, oh, fuck, I guess we'd better be mm. better. Cook, cook it real well. <laughs> yeah, we just we just left it, actually. Yeah. We'd, yeah. I'd shot a, we had more, borderline more than we could carry anyway. I'd shot another yeah. stag the night before, and when we're in the middle of bloody nowhere, we were actually in... Oh, yeah. And we yeah. walked in too, walked right in over the top. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a bit dicey eh, when you see something like that. Yeah. I can remember eating sheep, like gutting sheep with the old man. And once we found, like, yeah, the livers and kidneys were like all spotty and we just <laughs> ate them anyway. But never, we didn't eat the liver, but we ate the sheep. Yeah. Mm. Um, I can't. I think I googled. We might have googled it. Um, but they must get that at the works. Like with the amount of animals that go through, um, they must get like those ones with spotty livers and stuff. I guess they can. <coughs> I mean, you never hear a farmer saying like, "Oh, I sent these cows to the works. I never got paid for one because they had spotty liver or something." It was probably a little bit like not even that. It was all, see these spots here? Like, see, you've got these spots here Yeah, that look sketchy, mm. even though they're quite mild. Like, that yeah. like that looks sketchy as. Yeah, that doesn't look healthy. But it was almost like this. Uh, oh, that's all right. Which is almost, it was, you know what I mean? And, yeah, my mate sort of brought yeah. it up, and to be honest, I couldn't be bugger carrying everything that we had anyway. And I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> Nah, look, I was like, yeah, I don't know, man. Probably if you don't want to take, he'd shot it. I was like, it's up to you, man. I don't care if you were. There was a, way too many deer in where we were anyway in the middle of bloody nowhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, I shot a oh, quarter pig that had a liver sort of like that. wasn't spotty, but that had that like white undertone through it. And I ate it, the liver, and it was like creamy, eh? It was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then afterwards I was reading something about oh, you shouldn't eat, you know, pigs or have these parasites. And I was like, oh, shit, I ate that liver. But, yeah, nothing ever happened. 
Um, I definitely think, and and I look at the way I used to be like bloody, you know, because when you're running a possum line, you're up the ridge with there's no water, there's no creek to wash your hands at no. lunchtime yeah. and that. And <clears throat> on the trap line, um, I used to have a big breakfast, and I it was te- in hindsight it was terrible for me. <clears throat> but I used to have a big breakfast and then eat only muesli bars on the trap line. I'd take six muesli bars, man. That was me every day. Oh, six yeah. muesli bars yeah. and a heap of water. And um, Chronic sugar rush. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. I'd eat those. I'd actually eat those. Um, oh, what the hell were they? Those nut ones. Yeah. But it's all nuts, but it's stuck together with like, yeah, yeah, I know the ones I used to eat them, yeah. Yeah, what the hell were they called? Those mega nut bar or something like something that. Something like that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd take six of those every day, man. They come in a box of six, and I'd just, like, rip the top off a box. Boom, that was my lunch every day. Yeah. <clears throat> and then I had something packaged that I could just, you know, hold the plastic package and, like, pop. Because your hands are just, like, possumed out. Yes, blood all over them, fair and shit. Yeah, but I'd roll a ciggy. yeah. <laughs> have that on the line, you know, like, <clears throat> and I do look back and think, like, um, yeah, and, and we're, ha- you know, in a possum trapping career, you handle tens of thousands of possums, so you're definitely mm. going to handle a couple that could have, like, yeah, I definitely think if I was doing it again these days, I wouldn't be fully paranoid about it, you know, obviously bloody eat fish and shoot deer and eat them and all that all the time, Yeah, um, but I'd probably, like, Uh, try to just find little better ways around it. Maybe use some hand sanitizer, or maybe if I was eating, I'd maybe just have some clean gloves and put gloves on to eat if I wasn't by water or something like that. Like yeah. I'd be a little bit more careful about it, even just for like low key stuff, um, like uh, you know funguses and crap like that. Just yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I definitely think it's worth, buddy thinking about but yeah i also totally agree like a lot of people's perspectives on food and what they will and won't eat is like completely screwed up yeah oh yeah definitely like you're saying how you used to be able to sell hindquarters and i mean now it's pretty much impossible for like an average hunter to just sell a whole deer with all the organs in it um like you should be able to do that there's no real reason you shouldn't, you know. It's just mm, stupid red tape. I agree, man. And you brought that up. Um, you commented on the podcast that I did with Josh Lang and we sort of touched on, you know, like animal management in New Zealand and we've got the situation. Yeah. At the moment. There was that big show on just the other day yeah what was it called again yeah. uh deer devils <laughs> yeah and it was all like oh gosh look at the deer it's so scary and oh oh i just don't know what to, you know like how they get that vibe yeah. like this is just very sad to see and they're out in the bush like and there's a end of the world yeah vibe, yeah it's like i get it like and it can get to where the deer screw in the bush up and it's there definitely are too many deer in some areas. We do need to shoot more, but also, like, fucking relax a little bit as well, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. And there's, yeah, there's so, yeah, if we want to f- reduce the deer numbers, we could do it and make it, yeah, the doc and the government could easily, I think, take 
you know, roll back some of that red tape and invest a bit of money in, in processing facilities and a bit of marketing for venison. And, you know, if, if the average hunter could go out and shoot a deer and get 300 bucks for it, we wouldn't have a deer problem at all. That's that's the punchline. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, you brought that up in the comments. You said, brought that exact point up, and I was like, fuck, that's a... And I've, that's something I've thought about a lot, and I used to think about things like that a lot more when I was trapping because you're out there in the bush doing it, you know. Mm. And, um, yeah, you brought that up, and I just thought, man, that's, it's such a good point. And um, because if you look, like, throughout sort of modern history anyway, mm. uh, the, 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 own, the, ma- the main times that humans have had like massive impacts on game animals, yeah. particularly, you know, ungulates, deer, goats, stuff like that, has always been market hunting. Yeah, for, yeah. Market Commercial, hunting. financial incentive, yeah. Financial incentive, privatisation, so meaning uh, like the everyday man being incentivized to go out and get one and bring it back like yeah. and just uh, whatever means you want to do like use your own creativity and initiative and work it out just like how you can go and sell a possum body to Dawson fairs you can sell some fair you should just be able to yeah go shoot a deer and sell it for decent money and there should be processes set up that it's like yep that stuff that's in the supermarket is it's uh, that's got the massive stamp of approval on it's been through math it's been through all of that stuff yeah uh do and, and because you could go pretty deep with it and i don't see like those math guys in the meatworks yep. they're just i knew a a couple of people, that was one thing that when you worked at the Meatworks and you were going to be like a lifer, that was one option, man, I, I should apply for math because they, they, it was like cruisier, oh, yeah, better yeah. pay, they had their own separate smokeover room, it was like, it was better, Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, what I'm saying, they weren't a doctor, they weren't mm. a vet, they were just like someone that had just done a bit of training. It was a few months of training. Yeah. But why can't a hunter just get trained? Yeah. And so you can do the check in the bush. Yeah. Um, even you could take photos of it. Mm. Those photos could be like have a GPS tag on the photo and yep. time, place, everything could be tracked. Yeah, yeah. And done properly. Yeah. And, and there could be levels of it where – so you could actually – do everything pretty freaking well. And there could also be an element of, hey, this meat isn't MAF approved or what it's this is from independent hunter and it's as it's as good as everyone wants everyone wants venison, man. Everyone's oh, like yeah. that gets to know you and they're like, Oh, you're a hunter and yeah. like the first uh, like, hey, can I have some venison? Yeah. It's not like, oh you're a hunter, I don't want your meat. It's like, yeah. can I have some? Yeah. And it's um like on the math thing and the safety thing, I mean, I'd rather eat. In some ways, it, it's definitely healthier for you to eat 
like a wild deer than a, a cow that's been raised on like conventional farming where there's a lot of chemicals used and sprays and stuff that's going to have like drenches and yeah, pour. Yeah, there's some gnarly shit. Roundup yeah. residue and that and that fat around the kidneys and stuff like yep. that. Um, and you know that that stuff's okay. We don't we don't really worry too much about that. That's not checked or. You know, so they, they can let things fly if they want to. If One interesting thing about that is uh, that, yeah, you could, and you could start sounding real conspira- conspiracy theory and all of that, but there's so much money behind all of that shit, you know, and, yeah, and, yeah the whole game meat thing. But um, it's it's probably, it's harder to commercialize. There's no massive corporation making millions out of it. It's just now the everyday man can just go and do it. Yeah, it needs to be backed by the government, I think. Mm. Yeah, There needs to be like a portion of that conservation money put into that, mm. that developing some markets and setting up processing facilities like in a few regions. Yeah, the market, the processing, a huge part of getting it off the ground would be the administration and the whole new process of how's it going to work, yeah. uh, like categorizing it, working it out, making a plan. Like, but I totally agree. As soon as I saw that comment, I was like, "Fuck, that's so true!" And it's a really good point, man. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, I, yeah, I know what you mean. Like, and that's what people would scoff and say, like, "Oh, yeah, you got health and safety. You got, you know, all these sort of negative things that sort of try and." Sh- say to sort of just say oh no that's never gonna work but then you look at someone like like what dink did with the pet food and that's just one guy with like just his own pocket money and he's like developed this thing over the last 10 years where now you can take wallabies and rabbits and just about anything into the into them and sell yep you know and then you got like massive government department with millions of dollars and they're like oh no there's too much admin involved you know we can't do it it's so (laughs) true man it's so true um yeah and the amount the the amount of red tape now has just ground everything to a halt like everything's Mm. just got is so hard now there's so much red tape and the department of conservation is off the wall with it like mm. their, their red tape and the amount of bullshit and how difficult and how expensive it makes everything. Um, but, yeah, getting back to that market hunting thing, there's some really interesting stuff, uh, same in New Zealand, but looking at America as, as a bit of a historical case study, how uh, apparently market hunting back in the day in America, that's why market hunting in America now is uh, no one's allowed to shoot anything and sell it. You can't sell game meat in America. Because back in the day, like animal numbers were way down. Even elk and whitetail and blacktail and mule in the different, there was some areas where the numbers were extremely low, all because of market hunting. Because you could go and shoot it and sell it. Mm, yeah. So everyday man was incentivized to go out and get one yeah. and bring it bring it out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And like what the the same in New Zealand, we had the colours right. Mm. 
Um, man, I've talked to several. I'd like to get an old school color on the podcast. I wish I had got Bruce on the podcast, actually. Yeah. That would have been really. I talked to him. He was a little bit like, oh, no, he wasn't. Yeah. He wasn't that into it, but um, it would have been cool to get him on. I'd like would to. Have been. What's that? Yeah, it would have been, eh? Would have been really yeah. cool, man. Um, but the same situation in New Zealand like if you talk to people that were part of the culling industry right from the start all the way through there's lots of different versions of it Mm. but like most of them agree that they shot quite a few and they did make a difference but they didn't make that big a difference the big difference happened when the venison industry kicked in Mm. yeah and, and everyone that was around in that era that really knows and is honest about it said that the venison industry back in the day like seriously reduced deer numbers all yeah. throughout New Zealand, like massively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the same thing I've heard, yeah. You hear that over and over, <clears throat> eh? Mm. Yeah, I remember oh, my old man possumed a block in the Wyweckers just after like that whole just after like pretty much all that recovery stuff and he spent a winter in there and they only shot I think they only saw one deer or shot one deer the whole winter sort of thing like it was just cleaned out and you're going there now (laughs) you know it's just just low today Mm. and because you had you had the helicopters in the air yep you had ground hunters bush hunting. You had guys on horses. People were spotlighting, dogging, yeah. like it was just they the deer were just getting a hit from every which way. Yeah, and then you had people that were actually incentivized. They actually did lots of it, so they also got really good at it as well. Like so, the skill level got up in in mm. that, mm. and like the whole pop, you know, the, the, everyone was incentivized to do it. Like the yeah. workforce was everyone, whoever. Anyone that wanted to hunt. Yeah. And it was like, uh, yeah, the work was incentivized for like the more productive you are, the more money you're going to make too. Like it wasn't like culling or, well, I guess you had to get so many tails, but it wasn't quite the same as, you know, if you get an extra deer for the week, it's an extra grand in your bank account sort of thing. It's yeah, because... Motivation. <laughs> it was actually good money at some times, eh? Like like yeah. the value on a deer versus what the average weekly wage was. It was serious money. Like mm. you could yeah. yeah, so people were you see like reading some of the books from that era and even just talking to hunters from that era, the creativity and the work ethic that some mm. of them put into killing deer. Yeah. was just off the charts. Like yeah. they had little step-through motorbikes and making little handmade, trail, you know, homemade trailers and like wheelbarrows mm. and freaking any... Yeah. Diff- and like, you know, um, sleeping in, on the ground and just like the length that people were going to, to and the efficiency mm. was just off the charts. And then you think about how much technology we've got now. Yeah. What we could do would be so much easier. I think it's a really good point, man. I think it's, yeah. It could be huge and no one's talking about it. No. 
they're all just talking about um, the narrative's so strange. Um, and it's ironic to bring this name up because the, the name come up last time you're on the podcast is Nicola Toki. Yeah. Um, I think did I talk? Who did I talk to? I think it come up in the Josh James podcast. Just recently, I heard. I think it was on Radio NZ, um, an interview, and it was a guy from the Game Animal Council and Nicola Toki, and it was like I think it might. It was sort of the lead up to this Daredevil show that just come out, oh, yeah. and. Um, it's like, hey, we're going to talk. Oh, there was a guy from Doc too. So there was there's another guy from Doc. There was Game Animal Council, one guy from Doc, and Nicola Toki. And Nicola Toki works with Doc. She's like their, I think she's still their, um, like the ambassador. Oh, yeah. Is she still, or is it? I thought it was Forest and Bird. I thought she moved to Forest and Bird. Oh, she, oh, is that know. what's happening? I could be wrong about that. I don't really follow it. Nicola Toki, Wikipedia, is a New Zealand conservationist. She's worked for the Department of Conservation as a threatened species ambassador <coughs> and become chief. Oh, oh, is she now chief executive of Forest and Bird in April 20? <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. So that makes sense. So. Yeah, because it had. We're talking about deer. There's, you know, this was the Radio NZ thing. We're talking about deer. Lots of deer in New Zealand. We've got such and such in from the Game Animal Council. We've got this other guy from Doc. And we've got Nicola Toki. I, I, I missed that part. They said we've got Nicola Toki from Forest and Bird. Um, and it was the guy from the Game Animal Council and Doc seemed to be pretty good. I thought, and on this a similar page, mm. Game Animal Council guy was like. Uh, you know, game animals in New Zealand are have, do have a huge value. Lots of people really like them. There's definitely too many in some areas. We don't want too many. You know, we want to look after the bush. We, you know, it was yep. quite balanced. The guy from Doc come across pretty good too. He was the same. He was like, "Hey, yeah, we've yeah. established now that game anim- uh, that game animals in New Zealand, deer, chamois, goats, tar, all those pigs, ungulates." are valued by the New Zealand public. They do have a value. We don't want too many of them. And, and it was quite a balanced thing. Yep. And then Nicola Toki come in. I can't remember exactly how she worded, but oh, th- this is it. this was the real quote. I thought it was awesome. Um, she was literally saying, the narrative's getting out of control. Yeah, <laughs> the narrative's getting out of control. So, yeah. and and it was really interesting to hear her say that because over the last year or two, sort of since the whole tar coal um, debacle and all that stuff, and there was a real shift mm. in everything around that time. There was that big ten eighty dumping on Stewart Island that had headlines, and then the tar coal thing and all the crap against that and. It's like they pushed when Eugene Sage was in. It's like they all pushed way too hard, and then a couple of other things happened at the same time, and everyone went, "Hey, hang on, guys, fucking yeah. chop her down a gear." You know, that's yeah. sort of what I, what I thought happened. Yeah. And since then, and then the Game Animal Council's done a huge amount of really good work. 
the Tar Foundation's done a huge amount of really, really good work. I think the Seeker Foundation is doing some great work as well. And you're starting to see the narrative change. You're starting to see people from Doc saying, hey, we actually think game animals do have a value, and yeah, we don't want to. And Forrest yeah. and Bird are saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you're not allowed to say that. The narrative's getting out of control. Yeah, yeah. And they're trying to stick with... But what was really interesting is so you had the game animals say what they said, game animal council, you had Department of Conservation say what they said, and then Nicholas said... The narrative's getting out of control. Department of Conservation is dropping the ball. There's too many deer. We need it. And, and the interviewer from Radio NZ said, so what do you think we should do? Do you think we should have big culls? And Nicola said, no, that's not what I'm saying. And she was sort of like, what are you saying then? I just think the narrative's getting out of control. Oh, yeah. So it's like, what are you actually saying? It's it just, it's, what are you suggesting? So we're just not allowed to say that? Mm. Not allowed to talk like that? Is it the narrative? Should we kill more? Should we? What do you want to do? Yeah. It's a, to say it's, wanting to control a narrative. Yeah, that's the weird part about it. Yeah. That's a weird thing to say, man. Mm. And to just openly say it. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm not here to suggest anything. I'm here to control the narrative. She literally said that. Yeah. I just, I just find it bizarre. Yeah, no, that is bizarre. It's a weird thing to say. Okay, mm. so the narrative's getting out of control. So do you think we should kill heaps? No, because she knows she shouldn't. She knows that that's a hot topic. Like after the tar cull, yeah, yeah, we had thousands of hunters like all put in money and they were like yeah. on the block to get taken to court and stuff. You know, like we hunters mm. raised that hundred fifty thousand dollars and said, hey, this is actually a leak. Like. There's processes that you've got to follow if you want to do what you're trying to do here. Yeah, yeah. And so they're in a weird spot. they like... <laughs> it was just weird, man. And there's a, there's a, quite a few things out there at the moment where it's going backwards and forward and the narrative... Yeah, that's one of the things that annoys me sometimes is it almost seems like the narrative... Is more important than the outcome with Doc, and I'm not. I've got lots of friends who work with work for Doc, and they're like real good guys. And I'm not talking about them, but the people making the decisions. It seems more based around funding than actually what they the objective is supposedly. Yeah, I totally agree. Because, you know, I can see so many ways that they could get rid of way more possums, way more deer, way more stoats, and it just doesn't seem to be happening because of the decisions they're making, you know. The, um, man, I was having, I had a really interesting conversation through messaging on Instagram. I'm not, I'm not going to say the guy's name and I'm not, I'm not going to say any details surrounding the conversation because I don't want to put them on blast. Like saying, I know heaps of people that work for Doc too and get mm. on with them. Like the yeah. amount of times a Doc email comes through, someone's just signed up to the Deer Dog Training Blueprint, such and such at Department of Conservation.gov. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a lot of people use it. But I had this really interesting conversation with this guy. He was working for Doc at the time. Yeah. 
and he he messaged me asking me some questions about yeah I don't want to drop him in the shit he messaged me asking me about something like asking me a question just about something to do with hunting hey I'm thinking about doing this what do you think like he was asking for some advice it was something I'd done a lot of yeah. he was looking at doing it and he was like it just started off as that how's it man what's going on I was just what do you reckon about this and I said, oh, yeah, no, you could do, but, yeah, you got to watch out for this and that, and then backwards and forwards, oh, yeah, cool, and we're just having this conversation. And because it was about hunting, it was about, like, working on conservation land. He worked for Doc. He was thinking about doing some other types of work on Doc land. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, yeah, it could. When I was doing it, this happened and that happened. I couldn't do this because of that. And he was like, yeah, actually, I work for Doc, and I see stuff like that, and, and it – the conversation slowly snowballed until he was like, man, to be honest, yeah, I'm working for Doc and dude, it's horrendous. Yeah, yeah. And just the amount of shit that I see and that I'm dealing with and and it was it was crazy because as we were talking about it, he actually said at one point, man, now that I'm talking about it, it's... He was like realising how weird everything was as he was saying it. That was one of the first times he'd actually even had a conversation. Yeah. Because yeah. it's such an echo chamber Yeah, when you're working there. Mm. Um, and you're not going to be going like, say, oh, this is bullshit, you know, when you're in the office, obviously. It's going to make things pretty awkward if you... Dude, and you know. <laughs> I can tell you from like really serious personal experience, if you do do that, yeah. <laughs> if you do, if you're working for them or you have worked for them and you say something, they are out for you, man. It's, and it's fucking hardcore. Mm. It's hardcore. Um, yeah, it's just a really weird thing. Yeah. It's a really weird thing. A lot of money in it, eh? literally billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, mm. and and also though too, those people like Forrest and Burpee, Nicola Toki, like this this guy was saying to me one day I was and when all this shit was going down with this years ago, and he was like, oh, I know Nicola Toki, she's just real passionate about conservation and the, and they are they do they love the bush they love birds they like they get you know they're into it and mm. and it's all. Um, they do mean extremely, they, they mean well. They've got really good intent. But, yeah, they're looking at it from one perspective. And, and, and actually, this is the one of the big kickers, is, and it come up with the conversation with that guy the other day, is the gap between the people that are working on the ground that actually knows how know how it works in the bush. Yeah. And the people at the top making the decisions is massive. And the people running the ship from the top have, don't actually work in the bush and don't know how it works. Yeah, yeah. And it comes down this huge long chain of command, all these layers and layers, and then you've got these people in the bush just trying to do it. Yeah. And it's all messed up, you know. Yeah. Mm. Um, and and that and it's the same with the whole narrative thing. Like, for, you know, Forest and Burden Department of Conservation, this massive organisation, and they're 
the header command is up there, five, all those layers deep, like behind closed doors, having all these meetings, trying to work it all out and saying, okay, let's try this. And then it's got to go down through the whole system and try to translate mm. at the end of the chain with people out there doing a job. And it's really difficult too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and that, that's what that guy said, was talking about that. Yeah. It's such a shame. Like, I loved to be able to just get behind everything Doc does because I think it's awesome. Like, the idea of the Department of Conservation to look after all our wilderness areas is, like, really good, I think. And, the, you know, the objective that they have for the most part is pretty good, you know, to conserve native species. But it's just hard to get behind them when they're, like... Doing all this shit that doesn't make sense. Yep. Agreed. Um, I do think that, yeah, like I, and we and Josh James touched on that too. And um, like that interview where, and the guy from the Game Animal Council and the Department of Conservation, like I say, they come across really good. And I was like, man, like, mm. And I've said to a couple of people lately, the last year or so, I was saying to my mum the other day, actually, I was like, how much, the, and it's funny, and then Nicola Toki turns up. I was literally saying to my mum, the, the narrative's changed so much lately, it's crazy. I think in the for the good, for hunters, yeah, yeah. the narrative has changed a lot. Um, yeah, and it's looking really good, but <laughs> it's really interesting to see that pushback from, like, Forest yeah. and Bird literally saying the narrative's out of control, which mm. is actually a, a really interesting indicator that it has changed a lot. Because mm. yeah. Yeah. you had, going back only a few years during the tar cull, remember that, you would have seen it, I would have thought, remember that famous quote that went around and it was Eugene Sage, a younger Eugene Sage, like years ago, in an inter I think it was when she was working for Forest and Bird maybe, or maybe she was working for the Department of Conservation, but um, she was being interviewed about tar and she said, and, and the interviewer was like, hey, what do you what do you want to do here like with the tar? And she said, yes, no, we want to you know, eradicate, lot, kill lots of tar and we want to reduce their range and then get them down and then move for total eradication. Oh, yeah. She was just, and that was her like yeah. way before way before the tarkal yeah and it was like 15 20 years later she worked her way into conservation minister <laughs> and started yeah. pushing and, and was going for the tarkal yeah she was still trying to do still on that mission dude <laughs> and that's like that's pretty gangster that's oh, yeah, that's yeah. pretty that's yeah if that's what she was like frothing over that's yeah. hardcore dude yeah. She'd probably be better off just get a rifle and start shooting them back then. They're probably better <laughs> off by now. I've talked about this in a podcast before. Um, about I did my first proper tar hunt. Um, right after all of that tar cull thing was all over social media, and then the Tar oh, yeah. Foundation raised $150,000 and said, hey, if you're going to do it, we're going to take you to court. And Doc like, whoa, and like went backwards and forth. I think they ended up, they still went ahead with the cull, but they shot less or something. I can't remember how it worked. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. 
But um, it was pretty crazy. And it was sort of a coincidence that, like, right at that peak time, a mate rung up and was like, hey, I've pulled a tar ballot. Do you want to go for a tar hunt? I was like, yeah, right. Yeah. And we went, I went down. This is like right while all this is happening. And um, actually, ironically enough, I think we were the last period or maybe the second to last. I think there was one more group going in behind us and then the cull was starting. Yeah. And um, there was a couple of times, like just that quote, we're going to shoot from Eugene Sage. We're going to shoot heaps of tar. We're going to reduce the range, and then we're going to hook in again and go for total eradication. Yeah. And that was sort of ringing in the back of my ears as I'm like climbing around all the shit, yeah. shooting these tar, you know. And I remember one day I went right around, like climbed around these bluffs and stuff, and shot this bloody bull like across a couple of gullies. Yeah. And then I went back the next day to try and retrieve him because where I shot him was just cliffs and shit. I was like, I got to get right down in the bush and try yeah. to go around. And um, I climbed down this chute. Like we needed an ice axe to get back up it sort of thing. Not because yeah. it was ice, it was just vertical. Right. And it was all this vines and all like flaxy shit and monkey scrub and just crazy, man. And I climbed down through all that stuff and I got on big mature beach and sidling around this face, and there was a rock, oh, damn near the size of this room, or two, two, or let's say half the size of this room, this huge boulder, yeah. with a literally a cave underneath it, like oh, yeah. probably about the size. It was just a big overhanging rock, man. This huge boulder yeah. that had a cave underneath it, or just a gap big overhang, probably about half the size of this room and but not as tall, you know, the, the opening underneath it was probably like enough for a tar to stand up under. Yep. And like twenty tar could have fit in there, you know, like jammed in. Yeah. And the whole bottom of it was just like a foot deep of tar shit because they were just yeah. thrashing it. <laughs> it was right it was a wicked spot. Like if you went there on a rainy day Pretty much any rainy day of the year, I bet you there'd be about 10 tar in it. Yeah. Work oh, its spot. Awesome spot yeah. It was so cool, man. Yeah. But I saw that and just like had to laugh and shake my head like yeah. that Eugene Sage was so adamant. We're going to reduce the range, get them down, and then go total eradication. Yeah. And I'm walking around in there just yeah. going. Like that's yeah, that's hard ass. that's fantasy land. You're mm. not gonna do it. Mm. You're you're just not. No. It's not. Yeah. It's like gee. No, you're not. It's not gonna happen. Not. Yeah. Not an animal that's you know well adapted. Yeah. Dude, you'll get their numbers right down mm. if you did, and you know they've got that um, the infrared stuff. Yeah, yeah the thermals out of the helicopter and that. Yeah. yeah. You'll get the numbers right down, right down. Um, but And it's one of those things like you'll get 80% of them with 20% of the work, like that first 80%, mm. you'll smash them over pretty quick. Then you'll have to do, um, you know, another 
another 70% of work to get the next 10%, then like it it goes mm. incrementally to those last, that last 5%. Yeah. Yeah. Of tar in the Southern Alps, mm. when you see that country. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm ranting, but... um. Yeah, it was just crazy to see her. We're going to total eradication. And then I'm like walking around thinking, lady, yeah, well, you're, this doesn't even make sense. No, no. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense, man. Like they're not, it's, they're not, it's not reality. No, yeah, neither is predator free. No. But they all believe that too. It's crazy. To, that's the no, thing. That's way crazier, <laughs> that one. <laughs> Dude, I had this old guy one day have this whole rant about um, an ecological corridor in the Kaimai Ranges. Oh, yeah. And it was just some imaginary line, and it was like, it's going to start over there by, you know, over this side of the Kaimai. It goes in an angle across the Kaimai, and we're going to run traps through it and 1080 it and do all of that and just get that no predators, no, like, Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you you know, and you understand it because you've lived it, you know, out on the bush and hunting and trapping and stuff. Um, yeah, and it's just in mo most trappers like that, someone that's been a trapper or a hunter or has worked for a doc or something like that that actually knows because mm. they've done it themselves. It just drives them up the wall because it's like that. What your people that actually know are just like what you're saying doesn't even make sense. What? A, yeah, yeah. I don't know anyone who works for Doc who thinks predator free is going to happen. <laughs> it's so bizarre that yeah. that's nah. And that's the craziest thing. Nicola Toki's saying, "I just think the narrative's getting out of control. What do you think we should do?" I just think the narrative's out of control. You're not it. And, and I've actually had a conversation when shit kicked off a few years ago with this whole thing. When I made a joke about Nicola Toki and yeah. like pe pe they just they literally tried to cancel me, man. Mm. Like this is like five years ago. Yeah. Ever like this these group of people just flipped out and straight up tried to cancel me. Like before cancelling was cancelling's a real thing now. Yeah. I was getting cancelled. <laughs> I was ahead of the curve on that. Um. And I was talking to this guy on the phone. Actually, I had it twice, man, in that whole debacle. And I actually got a couple of the people that were trying to cancel me on the phone. I was like, hey, just sort of touch base. Like, this shit's getting pretty crazy. Um, I've actually had a couple of conversations here or there. And two of the main guys, one of the main guy that was trying to cancel me, Said one of the first things he said on he's like, Oh, no, we know we can't do it, we know it's not true, yeah, but we need everyone to think that we can so we can do what we're doing. Mm. And I said to him, Did you actually hear what you just said just then? Yeah, because it, it's just nuts, man. Mm. So that, that's why then the narrative's so important, I guess. But, you know, if that's the way they're looking at it, or some people looking at it you know um if they don't believe it's going to happen they're just looking for funding then the narrative is the main thing because it's public perception 
A hundred percent. But to be in that mode yeah. and think that's it's okay. crazy, yeah. It is yeah. wild. Mm. And that and they say it like, Oh, you know, we we know we can't, but we need and it's like, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, it's, that's what I mean about an echo chamber. They're in this weird echo chamber where they all say it to each other and they all think it's okay and it's this thing they're doing. But when you zoom out a bit, mm. like that's a really weird thing to say, man. Yeah. 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 Anyway, <laughs> what else have we got here? Oh, shit. <laughs> It's crazy, man. And um, I think – but like I was saying, I think the the narr- I think the narrative is way better now and way more sensible. And I think it has to be a conscious effort on their side, like through after the Tarkal and Eugene Sage and then we, they were looking at court and everyone's flipping out all this – Resistance and bullshit. Someone had to stand back somewhere and go, "Hang on, guys. Okay, what are we? A little bit of a regroup here. Let's tweak the course a little bit." Mm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. That's what it seems like has happened, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have a clue <laughs> what goes on, <coughs> but yeah. Um. Yeah, it's just crazy because it's such a big thing. You know, mm. it's the it's all of the public land in New Zealand. When you're a hunter, that's a huge part of your whole existence is how that what's going to happen here. You know, like yeah, it's the whole freaking thing. But uh, there's there's very little like open long form conversation about it. Yeah, yeah. I think there should be a better conversation about what deer are doing in the bush and looking at what trees are coming up and what and the, the long-term picture is looking like, you know, taking in consideration what the bush was like when deer got here and what it would have been like 2,000 years ago when there were, you know, a million or so mile running around in it. Um, I think that's a good conversation that should be had but it probably won't be because it's just like <laughs> too complicated I guess um, <clears throat> the narrative is yeah well the I don't know docs seem to like sim- simplified versions of things uh, that's another really good point man that, that's uh, yeah that and it's as big a point and as good a point as your whole market hunting point. Um, did you see, I can't remember when it was, it was about, man, I can't remember. Might have been quite a while ago, a good two or three years ago, even longer, or it might have, it was sometime in the last few years, because there is that whole debate, right, that deer, ungulates in New Zealand just replace moa. Yeah, well, yeah, they definitely don't replace them, but there's an argument that they're closer to what Ma would have done compared to having nothing at all, sort of thing. Yeah, that, exactly. That's the sort of good argument, I guess. Exactly that. Is having no browsers 
in the New Zealand bush actually natural or is it not? Yeah. Basically that. It's definitely not, like, because we had them. We had millions of them. I don't think it was a million. I think it was, like, there's a, millions yeah. and millions. Like, there's, like, an estimate scale from, like, 50,000 to, like, 6 million. So it's, like, it's all over the place. Um, but, yeah, there was probably a lot. I mean... Mm. Talking about docs, like, yeah, like just some of the shit they come out with. Um, I can't remember how it worked, man. What the reasoning behind it was, but and it was very headliney. Like, this is the headline. This is what you need. This is all you need to know. Yeah. So just take, yeah, hear yeah. this and just yeah. run with that. Take that away. Yeah. Um, the headline was basically. Um, hey, look, we know there's this narrative out here that some people think that game animals in New Zealand just replace moa, yeah. but we've looked into it, and that's not actually true, so just forget about that idea. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was literally the headline, bro. Yeah. Just like, hey, we've noticed that you guys are thinking this. Stop thinking that. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, there was a... It might be the same thing I read a few years ago. They'd done like a study in one area and they looked at like the gut contents in Samoa remains and they had a higher variety of plants in their guts than what was there right now. And so that was their reasoning for why um, deer are, you know, eating more plants than Moa. It's a bit more complicated than that because you can make the argument that there's less plants there now because there were no Moa for a thousand years you can actually make the argument because we've got lots of plants that have like browse resistant um it, it, like browse resistant characteristics they've evolved with moa that and you know without having anything browsing in the bush you're going to actually end up with a lower richness in the bush you're going to have less species but that's you that comment yeah, that conversation should be had, you know, it's it's a big one. Like, it's going to be different in every area, every, you know, different climates, different plants. Um, I'm thinking about doing a video on that subject <laughs> at the moment. I was writing down the other day, like, different plant species that have browse-resistant characteristics, like... Um, Kaikomako is an obvious one that most people know about. Um, Hotaweka is an obvious one most people know about too. But there's like heaps of them. I, I started writing them on an A4 bit of paper and I ran out of room. So I think there is a good argument for that. I'm not saying that like, you know, it, the bush is better off with deer, but I think that there's a good argument there. It should be had. For the listeners, can you explain what, uh, browse resistant characteristics are? Yeah, so I'll start with Hotaweka because that's like one lancewood, that's what everyone knows eh? so, or if you don't know it, it's it's a plant that grows starts off with these long black spiky leaves, they point downward and it has these little green spots on it to start with it's like, sort of work as camouflage, well that's the theory and then it gets to like two, three metres tall and then the leaves change and they get bigger, they're green um, and then it turns into a tree and those juvenile leaves fall off and it's just like this tree that's sort of seven or eight metres tall I suppose 
Um, and yeah, that's debatable. People debate whether that's because of my brows, why it's why it does that. I reckon it's bang on because I've watched deer absolutely demolish lancewood trees when they've fallen over. So they love those adult leaves. I've got game camera videos of deer eating trees, Hotaweka trees, like within a day or two of them falling over right next to Hotaweka seedlings that they just don't touch. So they don't like the juvenile form, but they love those adult leaves. So if those adult leaves started off on the ground, that'll just get demolished, you know? So the plants have a different form in their smaller, younger form to give them a chance to grow up and get mm. be big enough and tall enough and out of browse height, yep. then they change form into something that is edible once they're big enough to survive browse. Yeah, yeah. And heaps of plants in New Zealand are like that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. Kaikomako is another one. Most of them don't do quite what um, Hotaweka lance would do. Most of them are devaricating, so that means they get, like, real bushy and and have, like, interlaced twigs, and then they have leaves that are sort of inside of the plant where a deer or theoretically a mower couldn't get to those inside leaves, and then they have they also have their flowers on the inside, and then same thing, they, get, they have this big bush, and then they get to sort of two, three metres, and then they change. Their leaves are bigger, more palatable. And I've seen the same thing when they fall over. Deer just absolutely love them. They go nuts over Kaikomako. Eh? Yeah, Kaikomako has that crazy, scrubby, bushy yeah. thing that, that deer can't eat. And you see them like on the flats and right branch, there'll be a young Kaikomako there that's all scrubbed out. Yeah. And there's, there's no leaves reachable, but then it's like a... It's like if you're bunched up chicken netting or something, eh? Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, it's just like a net and all of the leaves are growing inside of that and it's just like a trunk with this crazy bush yeah. and then it gets up to a certain height, out of browse height, and then it changes into a totally different tree <laughs> yeah. and has like a massive amount of browse. And the thing about those trees, once they get to a certain size... As you think, well, how does that make sense? Because now they're big, so they're out of reach of browse, so they're not actually providing, but they provide heaps of food, eh? Because mm. all the leaves dropping off from windfall and yeah. trees falling over and branches snapping off. and Yeah, yeah. Oh, you'll know, like most of the deer and the edelweeders, probably most of their diet is leaf fall, eh? Yep. Definitely. When you walk around underneath Mahoe. Yeah. Yeah, especially on a windy day or something. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, um, like Mato is another one that does that devaricating as when it's a juvenile. Um, Kio Kio is another one. Um, Tudipo milk tree, that's another one. Um, there's other ones that have other forms that aren't devaricating, but they have like thinner leaves and stuff like that. Um, I've seen a lot of those in Fiordland. Um, Corfi, there's a variety of Corfi, Microphylla, that has a devaricating form, and it's the most widespread variety of Corfi in New Zealand. So there's a, yeah, there's a lot. And then there's all the ones that don't have, like, obvious things but are just not that palatable, like, you know, Kanuka and Manuka and Biwiriwa and... <laughs> 
I mean, people talk about the bush, like the bush getting destroyed in the Raukimitas and that, you know, the, there's no undergrowth, so when the mature trees fall over, nothing's going to come back. And then on the edge of the Raukimitas, there's farms that are literally fucking getting smothered by manuka and kanuka. And they're like grazing cattle and there's millions of deer in there. <laughs> and they can't even hold the bush back if they're, they try. They're spraying it, they're scrub cutting it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that narrative of, um, yeah, but in, they say it in a weird way, use a couple of big words and just sort of blurt it out. It, it's rhetoric, eh? That's the word for that type of language that... Mm. It's just designed to have this big blanket overall sense of, oh, God, there's way, you know, we need to get rid of, yeah. you know, that we need to let them do what they're trying to do because, yeah, yeah there's something real. But that that line of, um, I can't remember how exactly how I've heard it said, but they are implying that if, you know, they don't use 1080, they don't do this, they don't do that, they don't kill everything, that, um, yeah, it's just going to be some wasteland. Or the tree, what are, what's the, yeah. what, can you remember the scientific word for it? Like, Stop, well, I've heard, uh, well, it's, I think it's on the doc website, what, when mm. they like, list like deer effects, it's, no, it's not a scientific word that I read, but they'd say it's, they can hinder regeneration of forests and, potentially stop regeneration yeah so they're kind of implying that yeah the deer are eating all the seedlings so once the big trees get to a certain point they fall over and die and there's nothing left yeah yeah which is not what happened it's not what's i bet bet my life that you get it you know in a thousand years there's still going to be just as many trees in the uduid as yeah now i agree they might be different to what they are now because deer are changing the composition, no doubt. Um, but then I think we've still got to remember that like the mature trees now and most of our bush, they were seedlings after moa were hunted to extinction, you know. So like we don't even know if the mature canopy now is natural. Mm. Because most of it's like within 600 years old. And most people reckon, you know, Moa were pretty much, you know, that's when they were getting a hard time. Most of them were sort of gone at least, you know, three, four hundred years ago. Yeah. Hey, on that Moa thing, did you see that article in NZ Hunter about it? No. It was very carefully written and executed but it was basically like a follow up to that doc narrative of hey we know you guys think that deer you know that not having browsers in New Zealand bush may be natural but that's not true so just forget about that yeah. <laughs> um, it was after that and it was it didn't say that's what I mean about it being very carefully executed it, it wasn't it was definitely trying not to piss anyone off too much yeah and but it, but it was it was just very fact based, and I said, hey, this is just an article about the history of the known history of Moa in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. This is what we know. There's all these different kinds. This was the spread of them. There's probably I, I, 
I might be totally butchering this, but I remember something around the four or five million mark, but it may be way more or way less than that. Yeah, yeah. But what we do know for a fact is that there was lots of different kinds of mower and they were widespread all throughout New Zealand and they would have eaten a shitload of uh, foliage, you know, they mm. were browsers. Yeah, yeah. And, and we wouldn't have those plants that do that. I mean... You wouldn't think so. Yeah, you wouldn't <laughs> think they'd evolve that kind of, you know, characteristic. It's pretty extreme. Like, you look at, like we are saying, Keiko Mark, or you can see, it, like most people, you go in a bush clearing in the North Island, you're going to see Keiko Mark coming up. And it's so extreme, like they wouldn't evolve to do that if, unless they sort of had to, you know. I don't think. No, oh, I totally agree. Uh, uh, yeah, I totally agree, man. Like if there's 50,000 mile, well, yeah, they probably wouldn't need to do that. Spread across the country. Nah. I mean, surely there was way more, if there was no, like, bugger or basically no predators. Apart from the house eagle. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they probably, I don't know how good they would have been in the bush. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't imagine that they were that good. Mm-hmm. Because mm. there was a little bush mower, eh, that was sort of like there's a giant one that we you see pictures of, but there's a little bush one that was kind of like a small deer sort of thing, size-wise. That Yeah, there, there was actually quite a um, range of mower, apparently, in New Zealand. Well, mm. here's a image... On Wikipedia, where'd that go? There it is. Yeah, so there's your one, two, three, four, four kinds. Yeah. One's like almost twice the size of a person, which what I guess that those squares are a meter. One, two, three. One's like three and a half meters tall. Mm. One's about three meters tall. One's about 1.8 meters tall. And another one's about 1.2 metres tall. Yeah. Yeah, so just about a, a, a bird for every environment, eh? And it's really, like, man, when, when you walk through the bush, to me it's just blatantly obvious that it has evolved to have mower. Like, you, everything is just a big trunk that gets up to about mm. that... Uh, what three and a half meters, yeah. and it goes out from that. Yeah. You know, mm. you could just um, and, and everything's like that. Yeah, it go it goes up and like you say, all of the palate of the main palatables, and even things like karmahi. What do, what is that? Does that doesn't have a juvenile form, but they are they can start off as epiphytes. Mm. Same with uh, Mahoe as well. They grow. On the side of a punga, like, you know, the seedling, seed must just get in there and it just starts growing and then it just slowly goes down to the ground and then you see it all the time, kamahi and mahoe that have like a punga growing up the middle of them yep. and then sometimes it'll, over time, the, the fern dies. It's not just pungas, other tree ferns, but yeah, over mm. time they die. A lot of those big mahoe in the park um, have hollow centres, so I'd say they probably started off like that. Yep. Um, and yeah, that's another sort of thing. Like a lot of those palatables are good at doing that, which is kind of 
you don't see like a you don't see many matai growing on the side of a panga, you know. Yeah. So I guess they don't need to. It's not really a. You know something that I just realised is you know how um, panga guts, like those mean guts, are yep. always loaded with panga and mahoe. Panga yeah. and mahoe. Yeah. The mahoe are probably there because of the pung, and and that's why it's always, usually not always, but usually those areas with lots of mahoe have lots of panga there too, and that's yeah. probably why there's lots of, you know, because they've done yeah. the epiphyte thing in the top of a panga. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's probably not a coincidence. Same mm. in the creeks and that. That's where you see a lot of mahoe as well. Mm. You don't see it on ridges much. Nah. You do see a lot of kame in the park on ridges. Um, I was thinking about that the other day. I don't know. Yeah, that's a... I was sort of trying to age them. <laughs> Weird things I think about, but wondering if they were seedlings, you know, in that time where there was nothing eating anything. No, no large ground browsers. They probably are about... It, most of those big kamahi on the ridges are over 150 years old, I'd imagine. So mm. they, they would have been there before deer were introduced and after ma were hunted out. So there was nothing to eat them anyway, so they grew straight out of the ground. Yep. The other thing about kamahi is it is, it's extremely hardy, same as mahoe, mm. like... It's the sort of thing, a bit like grizzlinia. You know, you can you can just go out to a grizzlinia hedge in the garden and like cut it off at the stump with the chainsaw, yeah. and next spring it'll just blow out. Yeah, you always see karma here. That's like dead, eh? Like it'll be like a rotten, dead standing pole, and then like the next year it's got like leaves all over it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and man, another one real interesting thing that I've always wanted to look into. You know, how people talk about canopy damage and stuff. Yeah, there's a spot that I go into in Puriora, which has probably one of the most heavily tenated areas in New Zealand, like yep. consistently for 60, 70 years. Yeah, there's almost no possums in there. Yeah. Um. And I always see it, man, walking in along this track in this big valley and there's this big face out to your left with all of these, but I think it's kamahi, big dead skeleton kamahi. Mm. And it's like it just gets to an age and does like a big drop and and like collapses and um, dies and the top falls out and then it does that whole reshoot thing and takes off again. It's like a weird regen back and forth and it's yeah. also kamahi is also like real fast growing it just shoots up this weird skinny little shoot yeah. with bugger all foliage on it mm. and then it gets up and then blows out so oh, and it's yeah. extremely prolific too like when you see that region in areas that's like that tight yeah, um, lots of Kamahi poles, eh? Yeah, mm. it's all manuka and kamahi mixed up, mm. and it's all these little poles of everything. And as it gets up, like a lot of the the um, yeah, it can be real tight when it's little, and then once it gets real big, it's like heaps of the. You know how you, 
in a tight stand of manuka once it gets to that pole stage. Yeah. You know how it's awesome for firewood because heaps of it's just dying. Yeah, yeah. And it like it's like it self thins. Yeah, definitely does. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And it goes from that hundreds of poles all stacked in to three hundred years later. It's like big open. Yeah, couple of big mature trees, sort of thing. Like what's on those ridge tops, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah, and then and then dropping off those ridge tops down onto a flat that was cleared like sixty years ago. It's all in that pole form. Yeah, and you can actually see all the different stages of it in different places that are in different phases of regeneration. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think Carnica and Ma- like Manuka seems to be like that first colonising tree around here. It's different in the South Island than that, but yeah, and then it sort of creates seems to create that environment for the other ones to come up and then slow process to sort of end up with what you see in like a virgin native forest sort of thing a hundred percent and in those benches and that when you're in those of those you know it's all the kanuka poles and um mahoe and kaikamako starting you see those beautiful um like a young rimu yeah you know and they're like about six foot tall yeah like the big um, podocarp starting as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they deer don't seem to like eating Rimu seedlings either or tortata. Nah. Mm. Do they eat it once it gets big? Not so I much. I don't know. I, don't th- I can't imagine. Yeah. I think they do eat tortata when it's got that young growth, when it's kind of um, soft. It's a bit like gorse. Like they can eat gorse when it's that... Spring growth, but then once it hardens, I don't think they eat much of it. Mm. Coca tea has got a weird growth, juvenile format. It looks like almost like a dead tree, real spindly and not many leaves at the first sort of uh, for those first two or three meters. And almost yeah, but like you say, it looks like it's dying. It's like brown, almost brown, not green. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You're way you're a lot more onto it than me with all your tree, like your knowledge on trees and plants and things. I know a bit, but yeah, I um, know more than most people. <laughs> probably, probably, but, yeah, but um, it's a little obsession of mine. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, man. It's cool. Um, I got into um, yeah, like native edible plants for a bit there. Yep. Yeah, and geeked out on that for a while. That's a funny one, eh? Because I remember getting into it way back years ago and then I remember sort of coming to the conclusion when I was living in there that there wasn't that much to eat. I was like, ah, you know, there's a berry out. It's not ready at this time of year. You know, and then I've sort of slowly gone back to it again and again and now I'm like, holy shit, there's heaps to eat. Like, really? Yeah. Yeah. Like if I knew, yeah, wish I knew that back then sort of mm. thing. Are we technically meant to be allowed to be eating it though? Oh, shit. <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> God. We, Probably kn- not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, me and Josh, talk, Josh James talked about that. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. 
that that Doc had been on his case because he cut down a sapling in a video once, you know, sort of thing. And um, mm. yeah, we had a talk about that. That I'm uh, spreading a few seeds. What's that? <laughs> I'm spreading a few seeds. Yeah, you know, well, shitting them out here and there. <laughs> Jesus, dude! Imagine uh, how many possums. Yeah, you've killed like your your whether you're talking yeah. about. You, if you've had a positive or a negative impact on the bush, like, and even if you, for argument's sake, had, had needed to build a hut here or there or cut down a manuka pole or something, um, Jesus, man, the amount of possums and deer and all of that that you've removed from the bush, mm. uh, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's just silly, eh, to think, yeah. Like, yeah, I think you and Josh said, it's just like, Yeah. It's not an issue if it's like, you know, sensible to be like, you know, you can't go around just cutting trees down. I don't think you should be allowed to do that, but, you know, you've got to keep it sensible too. You, you got to walk around in the bush, you know, you shouldn't be worrying about stepping on a seedling or something. It's, it's not going to have any effect really, those, you know. Yeah, I think it's draconian. Yeah. That that's the draconian is is of laws or their application being excessively harsh or severe. Uh, it's just over the top, man. Yeah, you know, it's like yeah, we know that, you know, that you can't just go crazy cutting down whatever you want and lighting, you know, burning faces and you know, like yeah. being crazy, but technically you're not meant to cut. Or remove any live foliage. Like technically, you shouldn't even have secateurs and like yeah. snip a supple jack so you can get through to shoot a deer. Yeah. yeah. Um. Technically, you shouldn't cut down one manuka pole so you can set up a camp mm. to kill fifty thousand possums. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> even when there's a hundred manuka poles in a in a clearing and only you know twenty of them are gonna actually make it to maturity because they're gonna south thin anyway. Yeah. You still can't cut any of them down. It's way over the top, man. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah. Um and, and I understand that like it's a hell of a job to administer it. So they're just mm. like, look, and I can understand why. Look, starting point, just don't cut anything. Yeah. But I think, and, and it is an, an administration nightmare to go, okay, well, how much can you cut? Mm. And what is the line? And how are we going to monitor it? And then if you make allowances, okay, you can cut something, then someone pushes it too far and says, but you said I could. So, and they're like, no, nah, it's not that. It's, it makes it more difficult. Yeah, it definitely does, yeah. But I still don't think, I still I still don't think that that's an excuse. I still think that you need our, our government and our government departments need to be willing to put in the work yeah. to set up those and administer those rules with a little bit of flexibility so it's not draconian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. So it so it's sensible, yeah, and makes sense, and it's workable, and like 
so the world doesn't suck. Yeah, well, so just <laughs> so that you can get shit done, like you that's know, because that's what it's stopping. Eh? It's getting shit done, like actually getting. You know, do you want less possums or not? You know, do you want less deer or not? Because this is you're just getting in the way a lot of the time. It depends who you get too. I think it's like a. I remember getting possum blocks. Like you go in every six months to renew them, and it would depend so much on what person you got. Some of them were good as, and they'd be like, "Yeah, just go for it and do this and do that." I won't say what they said, but <laughs> and then other ones they'd be like, "Yeah, you can't do that," and you you better not be doing this, and we're going to come in and check, and if we find you doing something you shouldn't be, you know, yeah, we could take you to court, and it goes. Is, is, yeah, it just depends who you got sort of thing as to how you felt when you left. Some of them, well, I, t- I experienced the exact same thing, man. And, um, yeah, like exactly that, like you want, like the Department of Conservation is <laughs> acting like, which that's one of the main things is minimise, you know, get rid of possums. Mm. You walk in. Yeah, good day. I want to go kill some possums. Like, oh, do you now? Well, we're <laughs> going to see about that. Yeah. And it's like, hang on. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just nuts, man. Yeah, it's like you're a problem sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you would have had the same. I had, I've had some rippers, some yeah. real crackers. Like, And, and ev- everyone that's that's worked in that industry has... Mm. You know, and then yeah, every sometimes you get guys that have done a bit, or they they know, you know, they know what goes on, like what what's involved, and they're just like really good to deal with. Yeah, and it's like, wow, man. <laughs> yeah, I've had that too. Yeah, yep, the exact thing. Yep, they're really good and helpful. Yeah, I know you're right, mate. You can do you can do that, and yeah, yeah. I've had that too, man. Some really helpful people within Doc as well. Mm. Um, but it was always difficult because you'd have one guy try to help, and and you just think you're making headway, and then like, like you say, it depends who's there, and then you call in to like, you know, keep doing what that other guy said you can do, and you get someone else to the oh no, you won't be doing that. Yeah. Oh, old mate said I could. Well, he's not here now. Mm. You're just like fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to trap possums, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like, like, and there's that whole argument. Um, and I've literally had uh, people from Doc, and even people that don't like, um, don't work within Doc, but their dad does or their uncle does or whatever, and they think they know all about it and stuff. Saying to me, like, even when I was like um, full time possuming, and I just pulled like thousands and thousands of possums out of a block. Yeah. Remember, I was working in a block one time, and I had there was a lot of possums when I first got there, man, and I had messed it up. Like it was not good for a long time after that. Seriously, seriously reduced the possum numbers in there. And there was a guy that worked for Doc coming on a hunting trip, and there was another guy that wasn't much of a hunter, and he was asking me all these questions. He was like, "Oh, how many possums are you getting? Oh, that's cool." He was a nice guy, and he was just asking questions and curious and stuff. Yeah, how many possums have you got? And oh shit! So when when 
how long will the block be, you know, no good for? And when can you come back? And where are you going next? And he was asking all these questions, and I was just answering them. Yeah. And um, this guy that worked for Dot like cut in. It's like, well, actually, you see, Mark. So Paul's a fur trapper, yeah. and in the with the department with our you know, our regulations and what we, so Paul, and you know, he's a fur trapper, so fur trappers move on before the numbers get down to a, he basically just tried to whitewash the whole thing and say um, fur trapping makes no difference. Yeah, yeah. Which is (laughs) ridiculous. (laughs) Dude, it's so nuts, man. It's so crazy. Um, I'm, I, I know for a fact you would have done you would have done it in your career, um, dude. I've got spots that when I first started trapping them, in say '06, yeah, they were loaded, mm. and I hit them, pre-feed it, and yep. trap it, and trap it good, good trap set, real well, mm. real tidy, like good yep. catch rates, <coughs> very few. Um, Sprung traps and lost possums and that, you know. Yep. Um, and just honed it out right down to a very low catch rate and then go back like eight months later and do pretty good again, then go back 12 months after that, yeah, and then go back 24 months after that, then go in. One farm on the bushy to the Kaimais is a really good example. Um, the first time I trapped that, I think I got 24 kilos in 10 days. Oh, yeah, that's and good going. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was pretty much a possum in every trap yep. for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and, you know. Just creaming it. Creaming it, dude. It, eh? Creaming <laughs> it. And it was all on the bush edge, so it yep. was just trapping right along the, the boundary. Yeah. And, you know, you, you would know yourself, like, trapping – isn't a linear thing as in, oh, I caught this many possums here, so I'll be able to come back at this time and there'll be... It depends what the bush is, what... Because that was an environment where you had the kaimais and you had the farm edge, and there was actually... um, Here I go with being shit with trees. There was a type of tree... Ah, fuck, what was it? Really big tree with big um, roots... Um, what is it when, um, oh, what the hell are like they called? Big buttresses on Big buttresses, koi koi? It can do, yeah, was the leaf, koi koi's got like a Big round shiny leaf Yeah, like a few of them come out on like each Each branch, it has flowers that come off the trunk I think it's koi koi, man Yeah, probably is It is, yeah, because yeah. see that thing there? Yep, the seed, yep Yep, the possums eat those Yeah. And they just grab them and just like chew a bit of it, and and because you'd walk under it had big stands of koi koi all along that bushage, yeah, and obviously also the grass and the paddock, yeah, yeah, and you'd walk under the koi koi, and um, there'd just be those seed things, heaps of them all on the ground, and yeah. you could tell the possums had snapped them off, bitten them about five, taken like about five or six bites off them and then dropped them on the ground. And there'd yeah. just be all of these chewed up seed pods like that everywhere. Yeah. And um, so that that bushhead, so you get food sources like that that pull possums in, eh? And yeah. at different times of year they all pull in there. 
Yeah, the they f- move around quite a bit, eh? Mm. They can do. If, if they're in reasonable nick and they've got somewhere to go, they'll move. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Same as um, like a Kamahi Ridge in the winter when yep. there's not many berries around. Yep. And and you get all those frosts and all the mahoe and everything down in the guts and down the sides goes sour. Yeah. And the frost isn't settling as long on the ridges. Yeah. You used to get this push up. Yeah. Of possums moving up, and yeah. you could do real well. They just keep coming and yeah. coming and just slay. Yeah, you don't have to pull your traps up as often because they just keep moving in. Yeah, so you get these times and places where you are, where the possums are moving to, and you can just cream them out of that area, and you're mm. actually pulling them out of quite a large draw area too. Yeah, definitely. And um, if you keep hitting that that area that's drawing them, yeah. Over and over, over years. Um, and for example, that bush edge, like I say, when I first went there, I got 24 kilos, which what's that in possums? Um, say 20 possums to a kilo, 100 to 5. That's like f- uh, 450 to 500 possums. Is that right? Yeah, it'd be something like that. Yeah, I'm not even calculator. No, I've got a, I've got a calculator here. Um, yeah, that'd be roughly that, depending on what time of year it was, eh? Twenty four times twenty, four hundred and eighty. So yeah. I got about four hundred and eighty possums off that the first time I trapped it. Yeah. Then when I went back, about eight or ten months later, I did pretty good again. I got like twenty kilos or something, another four hundred. Yeah. And then about a year later, hit it again. You know how it goes. And then, yeah, because it, it a bit w- less. Yeah, yeah, a bit less and a bit less. But it reaches a tipping point. Yeah. And um, it's like, man, I can just keep coming back and doing this. And then eventually I went back and I got like five kilos. Yeah. Then I went back again and I got like two. Mm. And then I went back again and I got like one and a half. Yeah. And the last time I trapped that, I got like, Eight, yeah, and the and even years later, I'll call into that farmer there, yeah. And last time I called in there years later, and he said, um, he's actually he was actually the guy that managed the farm, and it was the farm owner that wanted me to trap it. He was like, when I first called in, door knocked, I said, yep. yeah, good day, just looking for a farm. He was like, shit, you get yourself up there. They're eating, you know, he's like a farmer. Yeah, possums eating the, the grass. grass. There's hundreds of the bloody things. Mm. And um, when I called in to see, I think I was called in and asked about firewood. I hadn't trapped it for years. Yeah. And last time I trapped it, I got like literally eight. It was just ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. He said, um, we used to go up possum shooting like for fun and we'd shoot 20 easy. He was like, mm. we, it's, it is fucked. Yeah. And, and once you get it down to that point, and, and this is a crazy thing, man. That last time I trapped it and I got bugger all must have been when the koi koi was flowering. Yeah. I've never heard anything like it anywhere ever but the tuis and the bird song. Yeah. It was nuts. Yeah. Because there was that massive food source that the possums were hitting. Yeah. And and there were hundreds of possums there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd pulled... 1500 yeah 2000 out of the over five or six years yeah 
and um, you know, you used to be able to go there and get five hundred. Now you go there and get eight. Yeah. And and Doc says doesn't make a difference. Fur trappers don't make a difference. And I've had people yeah. look me dead in the face. Oh, so you're a fur trapper? Yeah. My uncle works for Doc, and he said that yeah. So fur trapping doesn't make any difference. Yeah, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've had the same thing. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's a, you, you sort of have to say, okay, um, what else can we talk about? <laughs> like, because yeah. it's, it's like just all bullshit aside, it's fucking offensive, man. It is, yeah, it's just illogical. It's like, yeah, you want to get rid of possums, I've killed this many, are there less possums there now? Because I killed, you know, 10,000, <laughs> like. Of course there's less. I reckon there's probably about 10,000 less. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's, there seems to be an unwillingness to acknowledge that any way other than what they want to do might work. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like, what they do here, the trapping, that, you know, that those... Kill traps are pretty funny. <laughs> um, even the t- 1080, I think, is exaggerated, like how good it is at killing possums. I think it's good if you've done it for years and years and years and years. But I've trapped quite a few areas that have been 1080 and actually caught quite well. So I don't, you know, it's yeah. sort of another funny thing with that. What I say to people now when they say, you know, fur trapping doesn't make a difference it's like well i've trapped after 1080 drops and actually made good money trapping fair so yeah um yeah that's interesting because i i've always avoided 1080 areas like the plague i've I've, over the years Mm. i've had to hunt deer more and more in areas that were 1080 ages ago because you just you know every so many places have been 1080. Mm. You sort of run out of places to hunt if you try to say, oh, I'm not going to hunt anywhere that's never been 1080, you know? Yeah. But, um, yeah, I've said on the podcast a few times that I've seen places that have been 1080 and there's, like, it has messed up the possums, man. Yeah. So it's interesting, but that's places that have been 1080 over and over for a long time, yeah. including, like, back in the day when they used to do the real heavy... Yeah, the carrot baits and the, and probably I don't know, but a lot of those areas have been done with ground control as well. Had contractors in there doing like cyanide and stuff like that. Hundred percent, a lot of that, a lot of bait stations, a lot of trapping. Yep. Yeah. So you've you've trapped places that have been teenaged and mm. been teenaged many times, or um, at least a couple. I've. The first place I trapped that had been 1080 was by accident. I just went, I didn't really trap it for long. I just took 10 traps in. I was in the Kaimanois. And I was just, the first time I'd gone in there and I'd been like trapping in the Udawetas for like five years. So I was like, oh man, I'll see what the possums are like up here. So I just took 10 traps with me and set them out. And then um, I got back to the hut and there was heaps of guys there. And there was a dock guy there and he was, I told him, set a few traps. And he was like, oh. You won't catch any possums. It's ten eighty six months ago. <laughs> so awesome. Just just took the signs down, and then yeah, I was like, oh yeah, well, I didn't see much sign, and it's all mostly beach by the looks anyway. So it didn't look like good possum country. 
Um, and then, yeah, I was surprised the next day I caught four possums out of my ten traps and a rat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the duck guy, oh, there was another guy there that said he'd seen a stoat or something in the river. Um, and then the next night it pissed down with the rain and I was like, oh, yeah, I won't catch any today. And I caught another four. Mm. Which so actually isn't bad, not too bad at trapping. No, like if you set 200 traps, you catch 80 possums a day. That's like 600, 700 bucks a day. Mm. Six months after the 10 ate it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it works sometimes. Um, I've had a, f- yeah, I trapped an area down south that had been done a cup for a couple of years um, and didn't catch as well. I think I caught like 30% on possums and an outrageous number of rats. Um, in a place area that had been teenated. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like twenty rats a day. <laughs> um, I've seen that man. Oh, like you know, they talk about uh, rats doing the big spike after ten eighty. Yeah. Um, we worked a block one time uh, doing goat work, and the guy that was running the job like did the big sit down and said, what, we're going to this area and we're doing this hunting and we've got to hunt there for three days and there for two days and then we've got to go to this other spot for five days, whatever it was. Um, and this last spot was had been 1080, like, can't remember what it was. I think, how long do they say you shouldn't hunt for? Is it six months? Yeah, it's about six, I think, yeah. I think it was still just inside that. I think it was like four months ago. Oh, yeah. And he said to us... Um, because we had taken our dogs in there and that. And he said, you don't have to. If you, it was sort of one of those things like, you don't have to if you don't want to. I'm going. I said, well, I don't think it'll be a problem. I'm going. You don't have to if you don't want to. But that's what we've got to do. And it was sort of like, well, no one was going to say, no, I don't want to. It was sort of like, yeah. you don't have to if you don't want to, but you can get fucked if you don't want to sort of thing. Yeah. So everyone was like, all right, well, I'll go. And um, didn't have any trouble with the, you know, dog eating anything. I didn't see any poison. I didn't even, I didn't even see any dead shit. You know. Yeah. Um. But Jesus Christ, I've never seen rats like it. That was mm. nuts. Like you'd just be walking around the bush during the day, and there were just rats running around everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I've, I've, yeah, I've hunted everywhere, all over the place, all over New Zealand for a long time. I've never seen anything like that. And, mm. and yeah, that was four months after 1080. Yeah. It's bizarre, actually. It, yeah. It's a common little observation, eh? Seems mm. to be. I've heard that from a lot of, like, trappers and stuff. Um, you don't hear it from Doc, obviously. But I have seen them acknowledge it. I've seen them. There's, there's a quite a famous... Um, big speech given by a doc scientist depends how you'll watch it but it's if you watch it from a certain perspective it's kind of so bizarre that actually like the anti-1080 and anti-doc people actually use it as a piece of like hey this is what doc's like yeah have you seen it yeah i think i know it yeah but it's sort of like yeah he was describing what had happened eh? and he was kind of like 
we did this and then there was a sh- lots of rats came back and <laughs> sort of thing like didn't seem to be that worried about what had happened or it was nuts how flippant he was yeah it's yeah. just like yeah so anyway we had this operation and anyway so we decided to go do it and yeah so we teenaged it all and um you know oh, it's, and, and when he's like yeah so we teenaged this block this area it's like that's like probably hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars in killing all like the way it kills animals and mm. how gnarly it is and how much it pisses people off and all that stuff he's like anyway so we just teenaged half this Forest Park, and um, yeah, we went in and checked it out later, and it turns out it didn't really work. So anyway, that's okay. So what we did next was, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, bro, yeah, it was, it was bizarre just, just to watch it, mm. and the way he was talking and then he's like, so I really liked, I love little dicky birds, I really like birds. It was like a little bit of an odd, yeah, and it was touted as like this guy is, you know. Doc's leading scientist, he's so amazing and knowledgeable and we're all going to listen to him. And it was so bizarre that the anti-1080, anti-Doc brigade, you just take the whole video and just post it and go. Yeah, no. And like their video (laughs) is like an anti-Doc piece. It's really bizarre. Mm. Um, But in that, he was talking about how, um, yeah, Doc acknowledged that. um, The rats had come back a bit worse yeah Mm. the other really weird thing was that he said i don't know if it happens in the north island but like down south in that real cold country otago and that that rats rats get knocked down to basically undetectable levels over the winter anyway Mm. oh yeah yeah pretty sure that was like if you go out and set a bunch of those rat tunnels yeah yeah that it, it's like if you get an epic kill from 1080, you, you, apparently sometimes they do rat monitoring afterwards and these bugger all rats, you yeah, know. Yeah, That happens naturally every single year <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So which is quite bizarre. But then what they say is, and it, I guess it makes sense, what they say is um, that they do the 1080 so the rat numbers are low for the bird breeding season, eh? And then they, yeah, we know mm. they spike back up, but we do it at the right time, so it's, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah. It's all a bit, I don't know, seems all a bit rough to me. Sort of, yeah. There's plenty, there's a lot of questions to be asked at the very least, mm. you know, and it's, and it's, it's all been so, you can't, don't talk about it, you're not allowed, you know, so. Yeah, and it's so biased now, yeah, like you say, it's, it's hard to imagine that they'd be objective when looking at something that's gone wrong with 1080, you know, uh, yeah. Even if you get like a poison licence now, because you get like your controlled substance if you want to use cyanide, and they'll talk about 1080, you know, because it's included in it. You just tick a box if you want to have your 1080 license as well. And, like, all the other poisons are, like, you know, oh shit, like, it's really dangerous, da-da-da-da-da. And then they get to the 1080 information, and it's like, 1080 doesn't kill birds. It's it's good for the environment. It's like, what? <laughs> are we learning about safety, or are we just fucking... 
we're just trying to convince everyone something here. Like, what's going on? Yeah, the rhetoric is crazy, eh? It's so deep, yeah. It's so deep, man. It's so woven into the fabric of everything, like to the point where, um, yeah, you know, you see it in hunting magazines and, mm. um, yeah, it, it's, it is. It's so it's woven so deep into everything. And it's so absolute, like yeah, the rhetoric and the um, propaganda, and um, yeah, it's crazy, man. Yeah. Um. What else have we got here? <laughs> <laughs> we we're stuck in a rut. How long's it been? Um, yeah, I didn't ask you that, man. How are you for time? Nah, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Um, like two podcasts if you want. To. Yeah, well, we could definitely do another one, man. You're handy now. We, we're getting up there. We're getting up there, but we could go a bit more. Um, yeah. One interesting thing that I sort of started to touch on before and then we got s- sidetracked into something else, um, like talking about the market hunting and that. Yep. And it's a little bit of a political thing, like, um, the whole trophy hunting thing. Um, yeah, actually, this is just falling straight back into the rut. But um, talk about hunting if you want. Let, I'll, <laughs> I'll just go. I'll, we've already <laughs> said so much. I might as well go, cover this last point, and it segues into the next point, which is yep. lightening up a bit to okay. finish up. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, one thing um, that I. Noticed, have always known as an has been an issue for a long time with the whole recreational hunting, or and I don't I think even that's a weird word. Like hunting is in general because hunting isn't only recreational; it's food and lifestyle and culture and everything. It goes so much further than just a recreation. Um, but just how heavily the hunting scene has been weighted towards trophy hunting and how only looking at hunting from a trophy hunting perspective creates an extremely weak position when also talking about conservation. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's something that's changing has changed a lot over the last couple of few years. Like everyone's mm. got a lot better at talking about that. Yeah, yeah. That yeah, you, shooting hinds and like just, yeah, not being like, oh, yeah, shot a hind, <laughs> you know. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, shooting more hinds and just um, I, one really interesting thing, and this is going back a bit, but it's an interesting note. Um, I remember right after the tar cull, the Tar Foundation put out a public statement saying that, hey, it's um, after the tar cull, it's now unethical for hunters to shoot nanny tar. They were like, put a stop on it. We don't, we can't, you know, make tar go extinct sort of thing. And, And they kept talking about, that's what I really liked about the last, that the Game Animal Council guy on that radio NZ story, mm. 
he was really good, really well measured, was talking about conservation and stuff. I heard a guy from the Game Animal Council a couple of few years ago. I can't even remember who he was. He was actually, uh, he like was a hunting guide himself. Like big part of his job was overseas clients and taking them out to shoot trophies and stuff. Yep. And all he was talking about was trophy hunting and overseas clients and this, that and the other. And then the Tar Foundation was saying, hey, everyone stop shooting nannies. Doc's just shot too many Tar. We can't. And I remember just thinking, this is when Eugene Sage was Oh, going yeah. hard and I remember thinking Jesus Christ th- this narrative talking about narratives that narrative from the Game Animal Council guy and the Tar Foundation that's a freaking nightmare yeah and literally like within three or four days of seeing them those two parties saying that stuff something popped someone Hunter shared something on Facebook and it was Eugene Sage talking to Parliament and she said, um, it was like, hey, what do you think about the taco? And hunters are saying tar are valuable. And she said, um, oh, look, Game Animal Council, this, that, and the other. I'm not going to jeopardise our ecology so elite overseas hunters can come here and shoot a trophy. And I just went, she just lined them up yeah. and just went whack, just like knocked them for a six straight out of the park. Yeah. yeah. Because that, they were coming at it with the wrong narrative. Mm. That that trophy hunting narrative of hey, we need heaps of tar. So exactly what she said. So an elite overseas hunter can come and shoot a bull. That's mm. a terrible. Yeah. It's a terrible, terrible yeah. narrative. Yeah, like, and but the thing is, is um, uh, like trophy hunting's all good, but we yeah. can't. But we, you can't lean into it too hard and be like, "Don't shoot nannies," because we're just we're just setting ourselves up for forest and bird to just knock us for a six and go, "Hey, all you guys want to do is shoot bulls." Yeah, yeah. So the narrative, and what I'm seeing now is way better. Mm. Yeah. Um, the Tar Foundation is talking about like organising hunts to go down and shoot nannies in certain areas and like, like, you know, flying. It's sort of what the Seeker Foundation is doing the same thing. Yeah. They all get together, big groups of them are flying to areas. And I think Doc lets them fly into areas where you're not normally allowed to fly into. Yeah. Yeah. And they go out and try to shoot. I don't, don't know how many deer they shoot on some of them, but, um, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's real good. Yeah, we need more of that. And and even there was the narratives changed a lot on that over the last few years for the better, I think. I think everyone was freaking out a bit. Yeah. About yeah. the tar cult. Um, even the guy I was on that tar block with, I was like, on one of the later days, I was like, I'm gonna go shoot a few nannies and get one for meat and probably just bowl a couple, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, he was like he's just struggled with it. He was yeah. just like it, yeah, I can understand that too. Like, I don't like wasting stuff. Um, but, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. It's a funny one, eh? I, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with taking the best parts of the animal if there's an abundance and, you know, it's going to be a detriment to the animal if you just leave heaps of them there sort of thing. They're just going to get skinny and... 
can starve out. Um, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, I just think, um, like, for everyone, including trophy hunters, including, you know, and I think it's good for overseas people to come to New Zealand and bring money to the economy and go shoot a trophy tar and all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, that's not what I'm, I'm not saying. That that's not good, but... Um, we, we, and I think that that's what I think people are doing a much better job of. I think we need to be really careful about the the vibe that we are putting out as yeah. hunters that we're not just focused on trophies, that we are willing to shoot more animals. Mm. Um, because if we don't, if we lean too far the other way, which is I think that's what we were doing several years ago when the cull and that happened, yeah, <clears throat> we end up in a point where Doc go out and shoot. 30,000 tar and they're shooting bulls too mm. you know they're shooting everything yeah. whereas if if we're willing to not freak out too much wrap our head around it and go okay alright I need to shoot a few more animals and we're still going to be alright and there's still going to be big bulls probably yeah. arguably better bulls you know um, and I can actually shoot more animals and it's still going to be good next year when I come back I think there's a lot more leeway than what people th- thought yeah. or yeah. think and I think people are starting to work that out. And as we move into that space, that's with the Game Animal Council and the Tar Foundation, and they're talking about, okay, well, let's, we need to shoot more tar, all right, Game Animal. The Seeker Foundation's doing those culls and all of that. That's when they're starting to get more leverage with Department of Conservation and Department of Conservation going, okay, you guys are really making an effort now. We'll back off. Yeah. And all right. So and we start. We've got to hit a balance. We've done this big, like like there was a big crash about five years ago. Yeah, yeah. And we've gone backwards. It feels like it's starting to level out a little bit, but yeah. who knows? Um. But back to the market hunting thing, and and tro- this is what I mean about my segue about trophy hunting is um. I can't remember, it might have been on the Meat Eater podcast or another podcast, a guy that went on the Meat Eater podcast, he went on another podcast, I can't remember where I got it from, but um, back in the day in America when market hunting was charging, uh, an old, old male, like big bulls and bucks and stuff, didn't have such a higher value mm. and everyone wanted like the good eating animals yeah yeah and i think that's what boone the boone and crockett thing was so what they did was um let's look this up because i don't want to butcher this um boone and crockett record online sc- history of the boone of the Boone and Crockett. Oh, it's a bit of a yeah. So pioneers of conservation, our legacy for generations. So trophy, they basically invented trophy hunting, and were like, hey, and they invented a scoring system. Oh. So this, uh, uh, you know, a buck, a, a, a bull elk this big is a score of this, and it's awesome if you shoot one. Yep. They were trying to steer hunters away from shooting meat animals to shooting old males yep. because then you're not taking out the breeding stock. Yeah. Yep. 
yeah. and they they literally did this whole thing of like trying to change the whole culture yeah of hunting in the Boone and Crockett That's Club. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So they kind of create. Were they the first ones to sort of bring, like create that idea of a trophy? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's real interesting. And that's what brought the animal numbers back. <laughs> Tro- exactly, yeah. man. Yeah. Trophy hunting. Mm. And market hunting almost drove it all to extinction. Yeah. Yeah. That's how powerful market hunt market hunting is. Yeah. What you're oh, saying, yeah. that's how that that's what yeah. I mean by throughout history. Throughout modern history, without getting back to like cavemen and shit, yeah, and whatever happened to the mower and things yeah. like that, yeah. Uh, throughout mo- recorded modern history, the only time, the main times, at least, someone will be, oh, there was this happened here or whatever. S- the main times when in modern history that humans have had a massive impact on animal numbers has been market hunting, yeah. And that's basically your whole point, yeah. uh, how we should control them in New Zealand. Mm. Yeah, yeah. see right here, it all started in the late 1800s when unrestricted market hunting, irresponsible land use practices, pioneer settlement in the West and Native American government conflict devastated North America's big game populations. At that time, a national... Conscious, what's that word? Oh, consensus. <laughs> consensus, yeah. A national consensus opposing the destruction of natural resources was in its infancy. Theodore Roosevelt saw the wildlife decimation firsthand on a trip to Dakota's Montana Territory, Yellowstone, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this promoted, this prompted him. I'm, a, I'm the worst reader, I apologise. This prompted him to protect and restores, restore America's wild lands, and so he did with the with characteristic zeal, founding the Boone and Crockett Club in 1887 was his first step. Um, so on and so forth. Working with club members, several names there, and 20 visionaries, including outdoor sports enthusiasts, scientists, military and political leaders, explorers, artists, writers, and industrialists. Roosevelt laid a foundations for the world's greatest conservation system. Over several decades, the club initiated legislation in the first national parks, including Yellowstone, so on and so forth. Where's the bit about... Hunter conservation ethics, the bit about how they invented the whole scoring system. The Boone and Crockett Club first formally recognised outstanding North American game, big game trophies in its 1932 record book. The book covered relative, relatively few specimens and listed them by a simple criteria of length and spread of horns, antlers or skulls in the 1932 book. In 1947, the club held its first competition of outstanding trophies, ranking them by a series of measurements that were refined in the 1950s and made into the current trophy scoring system. Mm. 
So how crazy is that? Like hunting and trophy hunting was actually born. Trophy hunting was born out of conservation. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah, it makes sense though, eh? Like, yeah. Taking an old male out of a population doesn't do much to it. Yeah, so, so yeah, anyway, I just thought that was an interesting point. There's yeah. some really good podcasts on, I think it's on um, Media to Podcast. Yeah. They have yeah. this, I think he actually passed away about a year, or, I think that's when I saw it, oh, someone yeah. posted like, oh, you know, this legend's just passed away and we had him on our podcast and I listened to it, it was epic. Mm. Mm. Yeah, they're bloody good, eh, Meat Eater? Real good. And they do a pretty good job of like... Being, uh, you know, ambassadors for hunters, eh? Extremely good for that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, putting it out in a positive light, in a real, in a palatable way. Yeah, yeah. How most hunters do it sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, not not too rock and roll and like, yahoo, <laughs> we shot it, you know, like that yeah. sort of cringy shit. Yeah. Just, yeah, it's really good. Mm. Done a lot for hunting, yeah, mm. and and same with the shows that we've got here now, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, NZ Hunter, Hunters Club, yeah, um, all those guys have done an awesome job. Like, man, hunting's got so much publicity over mm. the last few years. Eh, it's just exploded. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Righto. So you wrap it up. Okay. Any other points? Anything else that you wanted to talk about? Oh, shit. I don't know. Yeah. Not that I can think of right off the bat. We can do another one anyway. If you get mm. some ideas, write them down. Yep. Um, what's your Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Patreon? Keeping um, it wild? Keeping it wild, yeah. Keeping it wild on on Instagram, you on Facebook? Yep, yep, yep. It's not very big, but yeah. YouTube and Patreon. Yep. Sweet bro, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks everybody.